0: You are listening to The Thundercling Podcast.
1: <laughs> Just rippling abs. How are we going to get fucking sponsored by these guys if we can't even get the name right?
0: Did you say you're doing wrestling
2: moves?
1: Oh God, I'm bleeding. Jason Kael was walking around on stilts. It's
2: fucked
0: up. I like to spice our pee bottle.
2: I'm looking for a drummer who will double as my driver. Triple my
1: psychiatrist. Second round, second minute. Say it again. Second round, second minute. Say it one more time. Second.
0: Okay. So, uh, no, it's too much.
1: That this is our second episode. Is what I was getting at. Oh,
0: I see. I was confused. I just kept saying, "Do it again," because it, it, it felt. It felt good, good for me. Yeah, and then it just like as soon like it just. The had third to one was too, too much.
1: much. The trifecta.
0: Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Listen. Whoa! Wait. We're back though
1: Yeah we're back My name is Dave McAllister I'm Feedy And you're listening to the Thundercling
0: Podcast We talk about rock (laughs) scrambling Climbing That's right Hey uh I can't believe you guys came back
1: Yeah Well don't say You can't say that You have to be like Thank you for coming back We expected to see you sooner
0: Yes this was Yeah
1: I'm I'm just, just Feedy it's okay Okay Um, But thank you for strolling back through the neighborhood, and I'd like to say thank you for the ratings and reviews that we got. That's That's super helpful. iTunes sent us a letter, and they congratulated on us. We are
0: officially able to pay our rent now, and we're going to get to move. We don't make any money off this, though. Oh, Oh. that's not what it's... No. Hmm. Did you get money from iTunes? They say, and you're not fucking sharing it with me? I thought... They sent you a separate one. I didn't get any money. Uh, who do we have on this yeah, We're so, talk about Dave, that after the show. Yeah, Dave, it's cool. On
1: today's second episode mm. of the Thundercling podcast, we have on local climber. We're out of Denver. Ryan Sewell. Oh, my gosh. Have you heard of him before? I have. I, I love know, that
0: guy. I know you've heard of him because yeah. you, you, you work with Ryan. That's true. You Ryan should. is just an all-arounder, badass human being and climber. He and, is. Let's talk about his
1: climbing a little bit, but this, his badass humanry is
0: much more impressive. Yes. But as far as his climbing resume goes, give me a give me a break. Recently, did moonshine, down in Lander, five fourteen d five fourteen d not dude. a cake walk. And no. then he's also repeated a, uh, a couple of hard ass boulders in Colorado. He did top notch V thirteen Rocky Mountain, mm-hmm. and he just did a chalet, in Clear Creek. Well, not that's just a V14, a, right? that's V14, right? V14. Yeah, he's a freaking Holy monster, crap, dude. World class, former
1: he's... youth World Cup competitor. Yeah, but he's also been in the climbing industry for over a decade. Yes, and he knows if you put both of our brains together and you injected them with steroids. Oh my God, he would beat the shit I out was of our say, brains. Yeah, our brains are weak. His court like his frontal lobe tied yeah. behind his back.
0: Yeah, Ryan, I love Ryan cuz he's able to just unpack things. He is a good unpacker. He's a good unpacker.
1: Yeah. He helped me move into this house and move out last time. Yep, yeah, what a good guy. He's really good at unpacking. If there's
0: a good chance too if you climb at any of the movement facilities, you have seen this gentleman. Because uh, he's a setter there. He's, in fact, the director of setting at Movement. Yep, That's head kind of... setter, Boulder, Denver. And he's he's also like a strategist for those guys now, too. Yep, because as you will hear if you listen long enough, Ryan is a man with lots of thoughts. He's got a lot of good ideas about how to uh,
1: grow a gym climber into an outdoor climber, like a plant, dude,
0: like a plant. You he waters it. it. Yep, you have to... Kiss talks, it.
1: He talks to it. There's yep. a heat
0: lamp. Well, you we have to wake up at 3 a.m. and walk out to it in the dark and whisper into it.
1: What do you say to your plant? Little, grow
0: you st- plant? Grow you little plant. Grow your little tiny little plant. Get, 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 stop being so small, you little get, fucker. Get, <laughs> <laughs> and then you go back to bed and then you have to just when do you, all the other things like water it. but
1: And that's what Ryan does yep. for. Gym climbers, <laughs> or something like that. Yes. But he he does he has some really uh profound thoughts on how to grow climbing as a sustainable indus- yeah. industry. Dave, why
0: don't you keep? Why don't you quit trying to put words in Ryan's mouth and let him just talk about these things, dude? I didn't know it was gonna be so confrontational. I'm
1: sorry, though. Um, I, guess I apologize. I, am, I
0: guess I am like this more.
1: Maybe we, we should. Thought. Maybe we should let him do the talking. Yes. And we'll do the listening. The listening. The Should we do that right now? Yes. Okay, <laughs> let's go to the tape.
0: Ryan and I went on a very intimate week-long trip mm-hmm. to Arkansas.
2: More like Feedy went on a tequila drinking trip and the rest of us tried to rock climb.
0: <laughs> Tell me more. That's, I don't know what else to say. Bottle tequila? Uh, what
2: what kind of tequila drinker are you?
0: It had a blue label. That's all I, I know. No, I
1: mean, what does it turn you into? see some it, people say tequila, man. Oh, it makes me crazy. Just, I eat the agave it, worm and I go nuts. It
0: maybe did do that to me. I got a little swaggy. He got a little crazy. What he does had, that mean? Well, we are in this so tiny cabin. It's raining. There's not much else to How do. How many
1: people are in the cabin?
2: Like 12 uh, of us. 12 of us in a four-person cabin. Oh, it was that tight, sounds cozy. Tight quarters.
0: Yeah, okay. We're all starved to go climbing. Mm -hmm. It was like we had just gotten there. Um, I remember John was walking around with his airsoft rifle outside, and some gentleman approached him and said, You know, walking around with a rope and an airsoft or a gun kind of suspicious. That's liable to
1: get you shot in this country, that's pretty much what he said.
0: That's exactly right, yeah.
1: Why was he walking around with an airsoft rifle in the rain?
2: Well, it was a BB gun. Oh, oh, and he was just walking around all week with a BB gun because when you take a trip to Arkansas, why would your first stop not be Walmart to get a BB gun and camo apparel and all sorts of good
0: good little tools for the trip in Arkansas. Joe's Valley
1: is the same, man. Go into the food Mm -hmm. ranch,
0: buy yourself a pellet gun it was kind of impressive how quickly john made his way to the bb gun who who is this john now uh john cardwell you may have heard of him ah Um, yes
1: he's pretty pretty strong is he kind of a miscreant yeah with his gun no, nothing,
0: nothing irresponsible. Okay. Very no. responsible Well, let's companies. talk about your
1: irresponsibility. What'd you do to the tequila? What happened to the tequila? Did was it, everybody, were I you drinking Ryan?
2: I was, but I don't know that, that he's going to remember exactly what happened. Yeah, oh, maybe a that third bad? person perspective. Yeah. Can so, bring- so the, <laughs> I'll, I'll sum it up as short and sweet as I can. There was a night where we had a bottle of tequila, a handle of tequila that we were anticipating maybe going through half of between 12 of us for the evening. Right. And all of a sudden <laughs> Feedy starts just taking pulls off of the handle and starts getting egged on by one of the other setters on the trip Jacob who's actually currently Feedy's boss and so he <laughs> just Jacob. starts he just starts pulling off of this bottle i mean at least 7 8 shots within the span of what 15 minutes something like that sounds correct and Jacob is is sitting there turning and looking at the rest of us going, he's going down. It's just, he's a time bomb right now. <laughs> we're, we're less than an hour from him blacking out, probably throwing up all over himself, not knowing if we're going to find him inside or outside, if he's going to have his pants on. We're just not sure what's going to happen. Definitely not going to have his pants on. And he just owned it for the next five hours, was just drunk. He didn't black out, he didn't pass out. He drank even more. All of us were completely
0: mind-blown as to how he was even standing. I think I pe- I you know I peaked early in my life, I think, at that what, moment. What do you mean you peaked early? I don't know. I just I just In what way did you peak? As a as a it's hard to consumer it's... of tequila? No, it's it was like a weird night of just It's there's a lot of backstory to like the moment that occurred i guess which was
1: well we got plenty know. of time i don't man. even know i'd really it. like to pursue I would, yeah i would love to hear pursue this, best, this story but... What the what your well, excuse
0: like, is for drinking a half a bottle of tequila well the half a bottle of tequila was for sure egged on um but there was one of the setters on the trip duncan hey duncan <laughs> what's up duncan fellow iowan <laughs> oh, oh yeah iowan. Uh, you know, there's like a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of playful friction. Playful Iowa beef, ribbing. as it were. Iowa beef. And Iowa beef, yeah, okay. those are pretty serious This is how I beefs. met Duncan is, uh, <laughs> he started working at movement. I met him at a staff meeting. I was like, oh, dude, you're from Iowa? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, have you ever been to the Iowa wall? And he's like, yeah, I've been there. It's it's kind of sucky. And that was just how it started, you know?
1: The Iowa wall in the one wall in
0: Iowa is <laughs> about 10 feet wide. How dare you, <laughs> yeah. Ryan? Yeah, Ryan, we're going to have beef here now, dude. <laughs> Are the Wild the, Iowa Wall or the Mild Iowa No, wall? like literally uh, the University of Iowa Wall. Oh, the racquetball court. Yeah. Not the racquetball court. i just kidding. Yeah. The but new there one. There was one. I don't know. We just... I just... Uh, I, I just I, <laughs> could you climb the next day after the tequila? Yes, I think we all somehow rallied. Yeah. What, not did everybody get drunk? Oh,
2: yeah. Not uh, to the degree that Feedy did. I mean, yeah. we were... It became the spectacle of the evening. We were just socially drinking watching him yeah. expecting an explosion.
0: I arm wrestled Ryan and I lost. We yeah. did. I remember that. Yeah. We both got happen. we both had tendonitis in our biceps for a while. Yeah, for, for me it was at least like two weeks, <laughs> I think. Well that's a that's terrible. a
1: good
2: badge yeah. for you, Fiji. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: Yep, losing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean as long as you can like hurt the person in the process. Yeah, so. that's fair. That's right. I think I had it for like two months. So
1: I once lost an arm wrestling match at two o'clock in the morning to a man with one leg at the, on the streets of Iowa. And he yeah. came up to me and he said, hey, man, <laughs> you want to arm wrestle? And I was like, no. He said, come on. What are you afraid of? You afraid to lose? I was like, fuck no. Let's do it. And we <laughs> sat down in the street and he beat me. And then well, he, he walked away. And then he disappeared into the night. Never he truly did. I've never seen him again. Wow. Well, i was pretty i like how he sought you out
0: though i know why would dave hey man come on i
1: was with like five people
0: there's something truly like primal about a good arm wrestle you know there
1: is at some point you stop doing it though so yeah i think
0: i hit that point yeah it was
1: (laughs) tendonitis is a good stopping point (laughs) tendonitis is good and like you turn 30 20 28 and you're just like i think my arm wrestling days are well also you start
0: arm wrestling people who literally pretty much arm wrestle rocks and you realize everyone's getting really strong. It's not just you and your friends at a sleepover. Right. Have you ever seen Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone? No. So it's weird is I've never seen that movie, but images of that movie are seared into my mind. DVD, yeah. Where they're like leaning against the truck and they're doing like yes. bicep curls, dude. And he, <laughs> he puts
1: his hat, you know, wears his hat backwards. Oh, it's, have you ever seen Cliffhanger? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. Okay, I just watched that last week. Yeah, the Bolt Gun. Oh, That's my dear. favorite. You know who... That was inspired by John Long. John Long, like, wrote the basic mm-hmm. script for that from the Lodestar crash in, like, 77 in the Valley. Yeah! Pardon the interruption. All right. The, the truth is that I made an ass out of myself <sighs> in the original interview telling mm-hmm. the story of uh, the Lodestar crash. So we're going to do it hyper fast. Right now, we're going to tell it really precisely. Year. 1977. Event. A Lodestar plane carrying bundles and bundles of marijuanas crashed in Yosemite Valley in next to lower Merced Lake. Climbers with noses like freaking bloodhounds crawled up to the lake and found bundles of marijuanas. Oh my god, I love that. Fallout! The fallout of this event was is that those mofos made a ton of skrill and they spent it on cars and trips and other things just like that. And if you want to know more about the Lodestar Crash of 1977, watch Valley Uprising by Sender Films. They touch on it. Or use your Google machine and do your fucking job. Come on. Back to the show. That, like, fell out of the sky It was pot smugglers, and that's how, like, all of the stone masters, like, pursued their dreams for the next number of years, was from, like, driving to L.A., selling thousands and thousands of dollars of marijuana that's how like jim bridwell became the story goes became like an alp a himalayan alpinist is he could afford to go there because of the pot he sold it's like a modern day treasure hunter it's pretty fucking crazy that story is wild i wonder
0: if the drug dealers who whose plane it was eventually saw that documentary like years later, I'm like oh my god that's what happened to all that dude stuff. there
1: are stories that um god i don't i'm not gonna be able to remember them well but uh, on climb talk actually we interviewed uh-huh. uh, a ranger at that time who unfurled some tales about guys in suits and sunglasses coming to the valley and questioning people and maybe some questionable drug dealers and there was a climber um who lost his life like he was just hiking up the trail to go somewhere and ostensibly was pushed off the cliff what? What? his name's dean pascal mm. was the ranger and he was weaving some conspiracy tales so it may not have gone unpunished but i have no idea i'm just a stupid <laughs> iowan i have no clue <laughs> but it's a fucking hell of a story
0: and that's where cliffhanger came from wow <clears throat> isn't cliffhanger sort of the reason that um wolfgang is dead too Wolfgang Gullick Wolfgang Gullick Because he got all rich and bought a Ferrari and stuff Yeah, he was in a car accident well, Because he worked on that movie
1: But Ron Kalk worked on that movie and he was right. just fine And I look guess. at Sylvester Stallone <laughs> Just doing just great, fine. No, he's, doing great he's, he's,
0: honestly, he's doing great, man He's honestly doing
1: great He got a boxer pardoned Anyway <laughs> Let's talk about real stuff Yes, please. What do you guys want to chat about first? Ryan, you have such a long resume I want to talk about the gym life Gym life. So, you're director of route setting at Movement. Yes, sir. I'm sure we're going to say that in the intro. That comes later. Um, I got to quit, and I'm going to have to see if I can get my facts straight here. So, the climbing industry grew by 13% from 2016 to 2017. Mm -hmm. 43 new commercial gyms opened last year alone. Yeah, that's right doubled the number from 2016. It's the most gyms that have ever open in a single year. 10% growth rate in one year for the gym industry. Um, something like 13, oh yeah, I already said it, 13% for the industry as a whole. And then Denver, since June, has seen two world-class giant warehouse gyms open in just like the last four months. Um, talk about how you see that growth firsthand and how you have you've been in the industry for like six years maybe
2: no i've been in the industry for uh almost 15 years 15 years oh, yeah it's a little bit off on yeah, that so we're gonna edit that out so <laughs> i uh i started climbing i grew up in texas dallas fort worth area um and i started climbing at about 13 um and competed as a kid and did the whole usa climbing thing climbed outside in the the little areas that are in central Texas. And by the time I was about 14, maybe almost 15, I was setting at the gym. Um, so I've been a part of route setting for, you know, I'm 27 now, almost 28, um, for, for a little over 12, 13 years. And so I've seen a lot of, of the growth in the industry and, It's interesting to say the least, you know, I think it's great that our sport is continuing to attract people Mm -hmm. because it is such an amazing opportunity to, to get outside, to push yourself in a way that's not necessarily geared towards competition, something that you can do on your own or you can do with friends. Um, In a way, it it reminds me a lot of golf, except for we're back by, you know, 75 years behind where golf currently is. You're a golfer, right? I I dabble. I, I played a lot whenever I was younger. Um, I took probably eight years off and then got back into it when I was about 20. Uh, And, and I've been playing, you know, I would say an average of three or four times a year for the last four years. And the, the previous three years before that, I was playing three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I'm very familiar with the golf industry. I watch golf tournaments every weekend. I know it sounds oh, super I one of those guys. Me too, yeah. yeah, I love it. Yeah, I grew up on a golf course. Okay. My dad was a
1: course manager for damn near my whole life. Yeah. But let's not talk about golf. Unless you guys want to turn this into a golf podcast, which I am. We can completely... still pivot. We
0: have time to pivot. <laughs> but uh,
1: I might, I'm might. i going
2: to go ahead and just uh, resign right here. <laughs> and I'm out. Um, but no, it does. like The, the industry of climbing really reflects a lot of of what golf does in terms of why people do it the type of people that are able to engage with it why they're able to continuously engage with it the different ways that they can right so what i mean by that is i can be a recreational golfer who plays two three times a week Mm -hmm. in the same way that i can be somebody who goes climbing outside a couple times a year um Or I can be, you know, the kind of person that is highly competitive in golf, and you can be a part of your club championships the same way that you can be competing in gym comps. And there's a lot of similarities that it's funny because my dad was a he was a competitive golfer all through um, high school and then some into college. And whenever I was growing up, I'd go home from climbing practice and would sit on the couch and. My dad didn't know anything about climbing to begin with, but he would always draw these parallels between competitive golf and competitive climbing based on what I was telling him was happening. Right. And the whole time as I'm 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, I'm thinking, dad, like leave it alone. (laughs) Like, Golf golf is is not not climbing. climbing. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And now that I've kind of matured a little bit more and come back to golf, I realize from the fundamental standpoint that there are a lot of similarities in the two kind of, ways that people play the games especially like in
1: golf as you know you can be having a terrible round Mm -hmm. and on the 17th hole you have one good tee shot or on the third hole and you Mm -hmm. play the next 15 holes just like holding your curse words inside of you and not snapping your clubs but that one shot Mm -hmm. can like bring you back for the rest of the summer yep it's the same with climbing that one beautiful trip or that one time you send Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Lots of failure. Yeah, it
1: brings you back. But back to... All right, no more golf talk. I'm going to put the kibosh on that. As much as I'd love to keep that going. Let's unpack that. Like, yeah, let's unpack that. Um, what are some of the... I want to talk about pros and cons of this mm-hmm. like explosion in the gym scene, especially from a guy who's been in the scene for so long. Mm-hmm. What do you see as... Uh, The upside and the downside of so much traffic Mm -hmm. and then we'll kind of segue into what that means for outdoor
2: climbing Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll start with the the upside I guess Um, And it's just simply that getting more people involved in our sport raising more awareness in our sport um, Getting getting to the point where we're more recognized by the layman um, Means that there's opportunities for those of us that are really invested in this industry Mm -hmm. It means that we get a chance to share the, the beauty of climbing, what it does for all of us um, with other people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's, it's hard to necessarily quantify exactly what that means, but it just feels like growth for climbing is not as bad as what people might think it is, but it is scary, for sure. I think, I mean, another positive is that like uh, snake eating its tail
1: like loop so the more climbing becomes popular, the more um, invested people get to grow in the sport, but that also helps the, the entry level climber because coaching is becoming more popular, right. route setters get paid more, um, more gym employees, I mean, more jobs for people who wanna
2: start in the industry. Right. And I would say too, to kind of to build on that, the culture of climbing is very inclusive, it's very positive, it's very... Um, green. It's very driven towards being a responsible person mm-hmm. and taking accountability for yourself. And I think that's something that our culture as humans, and especially as people from the US, is kind of taking a back seat to other things like make as much money as you can, like put yourself first, those types of mentalities. And so I think when people see climbing, I know my dad was this way when I was a kid, I would compete and go to an on-site competition and I would preview the routes with all of my competitors and we would be talking through the beta we'd be like oh i think it's this i think it's that maybe you grab this hold here and do that and my dad pulls me aside and says what why are you doing that like why are you talking to those guys out those are your those are your competitors and my response was always like dad you just don't get it this is how this works yeah and that that mentality towards climbing i think can resonate with people in more ways than just how they approach climbing but in how they approach their life Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of positivity to that. It wasn't always that way in climbing
1: though. Oh, no. Like in the eighties and nineties, it was like the, um, oh, what do you call it? Backstage of climbing? Not the seclusion, but the, uh, Stab! Stab!
0: pardon the interruption. God damn it, Dave. All you had to say here was isolation. When an athlete is about to compete before they go out there to climb, they go into isolation. Dave, you freaking moron sorry back to the show
2: it was like the punk rock era of climbing and you know there was backbiting
1: and everybody's in their lycra and they have their one saltine with mustard on it and it was it was tough man people like slogged each other off and Mm -hmm. yeah that scene's totally dissipated yeah i know that caldwell talks about it in his new book push and i've heard chris sharma talk about it too when they were coming up they're just like well these old dudes freaking out about is it. just right. climbing. Let's like, smoke some pot and climb. Right.
2: Yeah, it's it's an interesting like progression that the sport has taken because I've talked to many, many climbers who were at the forefront of things in the nineties and they just talk about how different it was, how it was extremely competitive and how it was yeah. extremely geared towards burning the other person off and telling them, like, No, you think you're hot shit, I am. Like yeah, right. I just flashed your project, like go to another Canyon.
1: Exactly. That's like the, the Jim Carn, the Scott Franklin days, mm-hmm. you know, that when America was just like, just introduced to what was it? A snowbird, the snowbird mm-hmm. competition in the late eighties, man, I can't imagine. Um, what, what are some of the cons that you see? Like some of the downside of climbing, growing
2: at a really exponential mm-hmm. rate. So all of those positives that we just kind of touched on, right. are they're geared towards the idea that you're putting people in terms of like building new climbing gyms and things like that you're putting people first and if you don't put people first and you just try and build the gym and open it and make money now we're starting to to create that negativity that we see in the more modern like commercialized industries right it's all about cranking out the next gym and and making money and not really about building communities and about Mm -hmm. like stewarding people's growth towards understanding climbing and what it actually means. And so I think that's a huge negative is that as things grow really fast, we aren't doing a very good job of growing the people as fast. And I see it all the time in my profession as a root setter. And I know that it happens a lot in coaching as well, where there are, more gyms opening that need root setters than there are trained qualified root setters, and so we as gym operators are responsible for growing these people, right? For developing them professionally as route setters or as you know um, coaches or, or anything similar to that. And so a lot of people aren't really focused on that, and I won't necessarily just say people, but more so bigger business ideas, right? They're not focused on that. They're like, we gotta ride this thing out. Right now the industry is growing exponentially and the faster we can open gyms, the more money we're gonna make. Crank right? it up, man, exactly. there's
1: always climbers coming up the backside exactly. to fill the coffers. Yeah.
2: So that to me is the huge negative. Um, and then the, the secondary one, which I think leads into what you were mentioning, talking about a little bit ago, is that we can build more climbing gyms, right? I mean, you can build 40 new climbing gyms a year for eternity. We can't build more crags, right? Yeah, the crags okay. that are out yes. there are fixed, right? Sure, we can find a couple here and there, but the big ones are they're known and they're trafficked, and the more people that participate in our sport, the more traffic they get, the more erosion, the more wear and tear, just the more negative impact humans have on these places, and that's a that's something that I don't know that anyone's really yeah. come up with a solid approach to handle. It's
0: pretty scary like when you think about how long climbing outside in some areas has been going on. It's relatively pretty short, but how much damage has already happened to a lot of places mm-hmm. in this little amount of time? And so like 20 years from now, it's it seems like that's that's a problem that needs to have some sort of solution, whether it's more uh, mentorship in gyms, mm-hmm. teaching leave-no-trace ethics, which is definitely a problem with the influx of a bunch of new climbers showing up at crags. Um, not really knowing these things. It's not because they are trying to be um, like bad people. It's just, they don't know necessarily. It's,
1: I think it's also like a two prong question, right? You have stewardship of the land, which is of course a gargantuan subject and topic that the entire climbing industry needs to tackle as a whole from the shop to the gym, to the guides, to mentors who are, mentoring, uh, younger climbers. And then there's a the question of the responsibility that gyms hold for the safety of the climber going out. So I actually have a quote that was a good segue. So Dwayne Raleigh, of course, is publisher of rock and ice, he told the climbing business journal, I think it was last year, or a couple of years ago, quote, when you learn in a gym where the floor is padded, everything is rigged and you are quote unquote certified to lead. You can get away with a lot without knowing that much yet. Believe you are qualified to experience the real thing. And I think he's getting at to the nug. He's getting at the point that maybe you are not that qualified (laughs) to lead outdoors. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna be hanging your own draws. Mm -hmm. You're going to be placing your own gear. You got to know how to place a hex. God help you. If you're Mm -hmm. still using those. Um, Do you care to
2: comment Mm. on that observation? Yeah, I think that there's a ton of merit to that mentality. And in fact, um, maybe three years ago or so, uh, a colleague of mine went up to Portland, Oregon to visit some gyms up there uh, because Portland, in terms of demographic, population, metro area, is very similar to Denver. And at the time, we had just opened the one movement in Denver. And that was basically, other than the two Rockin' and Jammin's, and Thrill Seekers was the only big facility. Mm -hmm. And we were considering the idea of opening another facility in Denver. So we got sent up to Portland to look at how six gyms in a similar sized demographic, um, how it functioned, right? So we went into Planet Granite, just built a brand new gym, beautiful facility, downtown Portland, super urban, and they made us watch a video. And as the intro, right, you fill out your waiver and then you watch a video. And one of the first things that they mention in the video is that what we teach you in here is not designed for out there. Oh, that's nice. This is the way that we like to run our policies, the way that we expect you to handle things, but what you're learning in here, we're not teaching you so that you can take it outside. If you want to take it outside, then you can go and seek that out elsewhere, but this is not the forum to be learning what you need to do outdoors, right? And so that begs the question of, is it a climbing gym's responsibility to teach people how to behave at the crag? That's it. That's what the industry's struggling with right now, right? And the problem with that is that climbing gyms inherently aren't responsible for what people do when they're not inside their facility, right? And so while it is a great practice to to instill values that apply outdoors from the side of of legality, it doesn't make a ton of sense to have a gym teaching people all of these ethics and codes of conduct and and ways to act at the crag. And that I think is, is the big question is, should it be? Because currently the way that if you look at an insurance company, what they evaluate is purely your business and what you're doing. The idea of of climbing and being out at the crag and being in the gym and and the kind of ebb and flow of those two things doesn't really register to somebody who works in insurance, right? Mm -hmm. All that they're thinking about is what are the risks What are we covering you for? What are your policies? What are your procedures for handling these types of situations inside of your building, right? And so that's where it starts to become this sticky thing is you have this business that is predicated on building this community, right? And having people come in and climb and discover climbing and learn climbing, but they're kind of handcuffed when it comes to teaching people how to do things outside of their doors. That's
1: tricky. Yet almost every gym i think including you guys um teach have formal classes of like lead climbing 101 mm-hmm. or um you know rescue rescue
2: management uh god what else rock rescue is one that we offer yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. that muddies the water yeah it does absolutely and it becomes something that is um these are tools that you can utilize um outside However, we're not necessarily teaching you how to act and how to handle yourself out on the crag. And I think, you know, the last thing that a gym wants is, okay, we teach you how to belay, you learn how to belay, we totally sign off that you're safe and comfortable and we trust you to belay in our gym. And then you go outside and you drop somebody. And you come back to us and say, Well, you taught me how to belay, right? That (laughs) that right there is the the sticking point. Yeah, but that's some that seems crazy.
1: That's like It seems like that would be like me getting in a car accident and going to Mr. Brooks (laughs) who gave me my permit when I was 14 and being like, dude, you taught me how to drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. I T boned that semi because of you. But I would
2: say the difference there is that there is a tremendous amount of legality that separates you from Mr. Brooks, right? Sorry,
1: Mr. Brooks, I didn't.
2: whereas the the climbing industry is so young it's so so infantile as it currently stands right we're just super super young that there's not all of this precedent for how these situations are have been handled so things mm. they can they're extremely volatile and the idea of somebody you know trying to take advantage in a litigious society like we live in oh, yeah. um doesn't seem that far fetched no yeah My,
0: I've heard in Europe there's like an organiza- organization that you can get like uh, belay certified, let's say through, and then you essentially have that like pass to go to certain gyms that use that organization as their uh, test. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's sort of something that could, I guess, spread here? And because it seems like that's I think a big the American problem.
1: Alpine Club already does that. Yeah. Okay. That or you can get like uh, oh, that's, belay okay, yeah, that's... certified through the AAC
0: because that's a huge complaint we get at climbing gyms is Mm -hmm. people come in like, Oh, you guys have a blade test. Like, what are you guys going to ask now? It's so different at every gym. Right. And
2: that right there is the reason why there hasn't been a ton of traction. I think behind the idea is because each gym consults with their team, both of their, their management, their insurance, anybody who, who knows anything about climbing to develop their standard. So the idea that each Jim is all going to agree on the exact same standard and protocol is we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Will we get there? Yeah, I I believe absolutely we will. But at this point in time, everyone is barking and saying, well, we want this and we want that. And they're not all singing the same song. And so therefore this thing doesn't exist yet in in terms of being an actual application, right? It does exist to the point that you just made about the AAC, but the, the issue is that each individual gym has to sign on to that, Mm -hmm. right? They have to sign on and say what the AAC says is what we believe. Mm -hmm. And not all gyms are on the same page with that.
1: Yeah. Not all gyms are partnered with the access fund, you know, I mean, most are, but I mean, what we're talking about is that basically lamenting the days of mentorship as not over, but somewhat a thing of the past, right? Yep. Like we don't, many people, most people don't learn because they go out with their buddy who teaches them how to climb anymore. It just doesn't happen as much. Right. It's the way I learned. It's probably the way you learned. It's probably the way you learned. Mm -hmm. Um, But those days are over. So that's a sticky problem. But let's talk about another problem that we touched on is like land, the stewardship of the land. Because I think gyms play more of a responsibility in teaching, um, Craig etiquette and behavior. And like you said, Feedy, leave no trace ethics. Um, what are the steps that you guys at movement are taking or that you've heard other gyms are taking to kind of combat
2: the problems we see at the crags right now? Yeah. I mean too numerous to list off. I would, to be honest, I would argue that I haven't seen anyone doing an adequate job at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that, you know, gyms right now, not to beat a dead horse, are so young that they're trying to figure out what makes sense and how they can be successful as just a business. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of putting all this energy and time into teaching people the, the proper etiquette outdoors, um, I feel like is necessary. Absolutely. But as it currently stands is a step ahead of where the gym industry currently is because I haven't seen anyone doing something that's really legitimate.
1: Well, the access fund has the, you might know it, the gym to crag awareness page or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that that's available on some gyms websites. If they're partnered with the access fund, let's say we are at that stage right now where gyms can start focusing on, um, some of the more ephemeral, sides of their business, what would you say are some steps towards a solution that a gym could take if we all agree that
2: gyms bear some responsibility with this, which I personally do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think that the best way to learn is to do it with someone, right? Yes. So the the reality of how to teach somebody something is to show them the process, take them to the crag, take Mm -hmm. them outside and explain to them what they should and shouldn't be doing and why as a mentor, right? And maybe it's not the way that we all experience mentorship and that it's one-on-one, right? Like the guy who taught me how to climb, who showed me everything I know, but more so the gym is is basically pulling together a group of people that are all interested in this thing, in this idea of outside rock climbing and taking all of them out and trying to mentor them as a group as to what is appropriate behavior. That seems like a super...
1: (sighs) easy thing to do really Mm -hmm. if you start a mentorship program just like your self-rescue class Mm -hmm. you have a a crag day Mm -hmm. where you take everybody to eldo or shelf or clear creek or wherever you want to go that's my dog um (laughs) yuki (laughs) no we're doing the podcast gosh it's always interrupting the podcast um and you take the kids out and you have the kids, a- anybody who wants to learn, right. and you go through the ABCs of crag etiquette.
2: What w- What's the difficulty in instituting a program like that? So as an example, right? The closest thing that we've seen is gyms that have um, guiding opportunities, right? Where a gym will, they'll, they'll have people who take others, members of the gym, outside and mm-hmm. they guide them around the crag, right? In order to do that, most often, and the only way I've ever heard of it, is you have to start a separate business that operates out of your climbing gym. Because once you leave the confines of your building, Mm. you're not covered to do business, you're not covered under your insurance, you're not covered under anything, right? So in order for somebody to do that, like the BRC has done, they've done it for years now. They have a separate guiding company Mm -hmm. that they take people out climbing, right? Two separate businesses that have a, a beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship. And so that right there is the, the way to do it. But again, that's the hurdle, is that you have to go through the process of creating all of this extra stuff. What about to- a liability waiver? In so, what sense? Well, I don't, <laughs> let's caveat this by saying
1: I don't know a damn thing about what I'm talking about, but what if you, <laughs> what if you had this class and you had a liability waiver that waived all of the liability for you as a per, uh, a guide, a quote unquote guide or a quote unquote, um, giving some sort of safety protocol. Like you're going to be as safe as you can, but if an accident occurs, mm-hmm. movement climbing and fitness is not liable mm-hmm. or responsible for that. Isn't that a pos, I don't know,
2: but wouldn't that be a possibility? I would anticipate it is. However, Getting coverage on something that is as extreme, and I put that in air quotes, extreme as climbing totally outside, yeah. right? That has nothing to do relatively, has nothing to do with the business I, I operate inside of my four walls is, it's a hurdle. It's a big yeah. ask. And I know that, yeah. again, the, the creation of a guiding company has a ton of value because they can do that. But the ability for a gym to just say, here, sign this waiver that says if something happens to you anywhere you go, we're not responsible.
0: I've also heard of stories that, like, um, someone broke their leg at a gym, and even though they signed all the waivers and stuff, they still sued the gym and were able to, like, successfully uh, sue. Yeah, it's usually
2: a settlement is what ends up happening. Okay. Yeah, But yes, uh, a waiver doesn't do anything other than give you a piece of paper that says, hey, they knew what they were getting into. Exactly. That's it's it. what we all sign every That's time all we've is. ever gone to a gym.
1: And besides, yeah. I guess a, a huge hole in my argument is that, let's say you were the head of this program and you're taking, well, you're still an employee. You still need to get insurance right. because you're going to be paid. There's workers' comp considerations. Yeah. God damn, it's a sticky wicket. It mm-hmm.
0: is, another hurdle is, yeah, like you were saying, maybe that then you have this program that has like say it's like a hundred to like three hundred dollars to like go out to the crag with this mentor, right? And that's kind of a hurdle in itself. In well it's
1: of- I mean I I would think it would be much cheaper than that if you wanted to be a trailblazer in the industry. Yeah, that's fair. And you're doing it in um God I don't want to use the word altruistic because we're talking about businesses here. Mm-hmm. This isn't pie in the sky. But um that's, that's a huge thing to put on your resume as a climbing gym. You know, Mm. like we are actively participating in the uh, stewardship of our lands. Right.
2: I would argue too, though, that the culture of climbing, what makes climbing so special is that there is this person to person interaction. There is this mentorship that we all experienced. And while it may feel at the moment, like the idea of mentorship is dead, All that that says to me is that we're not doing a good enough job as experts in the industry to mentor the younger climber, right? The lesser experienced climber, because I would rather work with somebody person to person and teach somebody the ways of going about things than creating some system or policy or procedure about how we educate people to go to the crag. Because to me, that's not core of climbing, right? That's not what makes climbing climbing, right? We we've had this ability to keep the, the concepts of business and insurance and all these other things at the wayside while still pursuing our sport and mentoring, you know, people and and growing. And I think that if we start trying to lump all of this, these policies and things into doing something that we should already just be doing, because it's the way that we all grew up, it it makes it more challenging to me.
0: It's one of the, uh tough things about just being a climber and being you know shouldering some of the responsibility of educating people is how uh i feel like especially in climbing it's really hard to go up to someone who let's say you see and they're like throwing the brake hand off the brake end consistently on like an atc the slack's too much their climber's like backlipping you go up to them and you're like hey man was watching you climb and i noticed you're doing these things and they're dangerous for this reason and it's it seems like it's super common for people to to essentially get really offended and unable to take um constructive
1: criticism yeah, but, uh, i guess fuck them i think it's incumbent upon you if you see somebody acting uh, in an unsafe way which i've seen a million times yep. be as polite as you can and Politely confront that person. W- yeah. What uh, what other choice do you have? Just to to not say anything? Yeah, I don't think that's the way to. I I, I mean that's for all climbers, not only the to gym, but I mean I've seen some crazy crazy shit in my twenty years. And you just had. And if they
2: say, "Hey man, this is the way I do it," I'm twi- <laughs> I twist mean, timing mean, longer, which happens all the more. time. I mean, Feedy knows you experience this constantly working the oh, desk yeah. at the gym. Oh yes. People, they, uh, they have their ways and they feel like their ways are the right ways. And it's challenging to approach someone, but when you look at it through the lens of this is a serious safety issue, it becomes very easy. It's just, it's never simple, as simple as saying like, oh yeah, hey, maybe next time you should try doing this, right? It's a serious (laughs) infraction. If you work at a gym, that's your job. Exactly.
1: So that's, I think that's fairly straightforward. Like you, your job is to make sure your guests and the people around them are safe at all times. However, when you're outside and Molly and Jake to your right are Z clipping their way up a route. (laughs) Impressive. Yeah. yeah, A lot of rope drag. Um, then you need to say something,
2: but I think that can be managed Mm -hmm. politely. As an example, a friend of mine, been climbing for 20 plus years. Great friend, known him forever. Uh, We were out climbing. My girlfriend, well, fiance now, uh, myself and him. And he was in town visiting and belaying on a grigri and was very, I'll just say, Spanish with his belay (laughs) style, right? Hands (laughs) totally off the rope, smoking Smoking a a cigarette. cigarette. Yep, exactly. (laughs) And the whole time, you know, I'm up there climbing and come down and my fiance is like, he's the worst belayer ever. Like, don't ever let him belay me. Right. And when I talk to him about it, he's like, dude, it's a gree Right. <sighs> yeah. It's not like nothing is going to happen. Right. I've caught thousands of people like this, <laughs> and it's actually better if I don't have my hands on the rope at all because then I'm not going to screw anything up. Right. Huh. And there are people out there that firmly believe in that mentality. Yeah, if I can't touch the gree I can't panic and hit the
1: brake or like mm-hmm. s- depress yeah. it. You know what I mean? And just let the loose rope yep.
2: slide through. That's crazy talk. Mm hmm. So Oh that's tough when it's a friend too. Exactly. Yeah, and like it's A-man. challenging. Yeah. Can you just blame me the way that you're supposed to, please? Yeah, <laughs> if I'm on the rope, you can blame me my way. Right.
1: If your buddy's on the rope, you can blame however. I'm definitely you want.
0: guilty of that where it's just like, all right, I'm just not gonna let this guy belay me, but mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna talk to him about <sighs> it either. I I'm be I'll be better.
1: Right. Yeah, is a tough anyway, man. I've been dropped on a Grigory Yeah, the only om- thirty
0: footer, but not far. The only uh serious climbing accident that I a friend of mine was has been in was because of uh someone was being belayed with a cinch. Mm. And oh, back when and the
1: cinch had all those issues?
0: Maybe, but I think it was probably just user error. Uh. Um, most likely. But yeah, the the cinch is kind of a, had some issues. Yeah,
1: I don't remember the year, but cinch has mm-hmm. had a huge issue mm-hmm. in their like uh getting to the adult phase. Yeah. There were big issues with it. And, That's, you know, it was confusing when the Gregory was the only game in town and the Cinch came yeah. out. Mm-hmm. It was.
0: That's why I'm a big fan of people learning to lead Belay or Belay on ATCs or. Always. Oh because it, it. I don't it, think you
1: guys should allow Grigris no. in the gym to learn on, it, ever. It enforces,
0: so, like, good habits, like, yeah. always holding a break in.
2: So there's a gym um, that shall remain unnamed that actually <laughs> just banned the use of anything but a Gregory at their facility.
1: What. Uh, what's the justification
2: of that? Everybody has $110 to go buy a grigri or 160. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that they probably rent them out or a lot of gyms in in smaller markets usually have fixed grigries on their top ropes always. Um, because the idea is that if you're going to teach somebody like a lot of small markets do how to belay on the spot, right? Here's your 20 minute belay tutorial. Show me, you know how to do it. I'd much rather them have a Grigri than an ATC, especially obviously on top rope belaying, right? Yeah. Because if they don't, if they don't remember, like, oh yeah, grab the rope, pull it down here, and they're on an ATC, that climber's hitting the ground. The second that the rope starts going, that yeah. climber's hitting the ground. Grigri, a lot less likely, right? Yeah. So the the lead belaying thing, I don't know what exactly the conversation was that went into this, but I know that the mentality currently in gyms is that a gregory is safer than an ATC always because it's an assisted braking device, right? Whereas an ATC doesn't have that mm-hmm. learning on an ATC. I a hundred percent agree with you. Teaches you how the dynamics of how to properly belay and the forces that are at hand and what happens if you don't do the right yeah, thing. And learn to respect it. Yep, exactly. Whereas a gregory to the point I was making earlier about my friend is like, no, it's going to work. It's fine. Right. Yeah. But Gyms look at it like how do we prevent injuries? What do we do to prevent injuries and it's a accidents? good points. And an, an assisted braking device feels as though, I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. you're going to see less accidents yeah. than a non-assisted braking device. It just has one user error
1: that you can make that can just, especially if you're on, climbing in a gym with 30 foot walls or 40 mm-hmm. foot walls, you squeeze that puppy for like literally one second,
2: mm-hmm. and they're gonna be, they're gonna be decking possibly. Right. Yeah, and I would I would argue with the grigri the the new like technique that they've you know basically unveiled and said you should have your your pointer finger right basically like kind of hooked. rolled up and hooked underneath the bent flange on a grigri, uh-huh. and then you take your thumb and you put it on top of the cam to pull the slack out right. Yeah. This whole idea of grabbing the whole thing <laughs> is that shouldn't exist. Well, that
0: sucks because that was their official way for a long time. It right? was, and then so then it creates the, the, uh, the habit. The habit that the people mm-hmm. have. It's like no, no. This is how I learn. It's like yes, but it's changed. Right. Please. hmm I like the I like the Revo. Have you seen that thing? I haven't. Oh, it's super cool. It looks just like an ATC. You feed Slack out like an ATC, but it has this sort of. Technology in it that it's same as like a seatbelt, where if the rope starts sliding at a certain velocity through it, it engages and breaks. Wow, um, that's crazy. Is, it's sort of. That's I mean, kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It's who makes it? uh Trango, I believe. Boom! Shout oh, out to I Trango. Shout out.
1: Yes. Little Boulder Company. Mm. um All right, let's get off the safety issue, but I want to keep talking about gyms. How do you think? Uh, or have you seen the landscape change at all in, in gym climbing with the admission of climbing into the 2020 Olympics, specifically towards the, the big surprise, the biggest unveil is that speed climbing would be a part of the Olympics. Right. And how are gyms dealing with, uh, first of all, are the kids excited?
2: Second of all, how, how are gyms going to deal with the speed climbing aspect mm-hmm. if people want to train? I would say that at this point, um, the idea of the Olympics, um, climbing being in the the Olympics affects 0.01% of climbers, Uh right? So while speed climbing, which is funny because it's supposed to be, I believe, in this year's Real Rock, is there supposed to be some sort of speed climbing. There is. That's one of the four films. Yep. While it is becoming this bigger thing, no one has really latched on to it yet in the sense that we're not getting requests from people to put speed speed routes on the wall, right? right. Like we don't hear that cuz we currently don't have speed routes on the wall.
1: I don't know a lot about speed routes, but are they all they're all the exact same? Exactly. Correct. Okay. Yep,
2: okay. Yeah, there are two versions, one's 10 meters and one's 15 meters. Okay. But they're all set exactly the same way. The 10 meter is one way and the 15 meter is the exact same for those first 10 meters and then the last 5 is new climbing. So with speed climbing, I think we'll see that in the future, but at the moment, nobody has really latched on to speed climbing and said like, this is my discipline, right? And in terms of new climbers. There are a lot of professional climbers that are that way, mm-hmm. right? And if that's the case, and they're that, that interested in speed climbing, then they'll find a facility that has adequate training for speed climbing. And you need a, you need um...
0: Super belayer.
1: Auto- yeah, you're not going to have like unlucky Joe belaying you up <laughs> that thing, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you need self belay devices. Yep, auto belay devices. And you guys don't even have those in mm-hmm. movement at all.
2: No, we believe that the auto belay creates a type of community that's very um, focused on me getting my pitches in and less focused on you and me like. Climbing together. Partnering and, and up. There's exactly. A lot of people uh, have had
0: accidents with those. Yeah. At least a few years ago.
2: Oh yeah.
1: Like a number <laughs> of years ago uh, the, a company went out of business or like mm-hmm. pulled uh they pulled their product off the market for mm-hmm. a while.
0: It says a lot about the human mind, how like you can be in such an autopilot mode where you yep. just walk over to the crag and you start climbing, you're like, Oh. Wait a minute. I'm not
1: t- clipped in. Oh oh poopy. Yep. Dude, I've definitely not clipped in like you just don't even think about it it's so laissez-faire mm. that you're about ready to get on yeah. i think uh Rockin' and jamming still has a couple
2: of them mm. and a couple other places in uh the metro area they're pretty standard autoblays are pretty standard yeah. across most gyms we we're one of the few i would say that firmly has a stance against autoblays but it's not because we believe in the idea that People are always going to get hurt on Audible or anything like that. I mean, sure, it does open you up to somebody making an error, of course, mm-hmm. but it just fundamentally doesn't align with the, the vision that we have as a business, Dude, which that is, is bringing great. people together. You guys got to put that on your website. That's
1: an awesome philosophy. I had no idea that that was the reason. Because I've always wondered why
2: you can, your facilities are so big, especially the Denver one, you know.
1: I thought, why don't they have a little corner
2: with mm-hmm. auto belays? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We um, offer a program that runs at least a half dozen times a week called the rope up, where basically we have a staff member that facilitates people meeting each other and climbing together. And if they don't meet someone and there's an odd number or whatever, that facilitator belays that person until somebody else shows up. Oh, so cool. I love the rope up. Yeah. We try and offer things to, to bolster that lack of, I don't have a partner, um, and and it's very successful, I would
0: say. Oh, that's hey, awesome. Back to the speed wall thing. Mm-hmm. One of the first weeks I worked at Movement, someone called, and they're like, "Hey, I'm going to compete in China soon. I'm in Denver for a little bit. Do you guys have a speed wall?" And I was like, "Well, we have actually like the the wall for it, but it's not set up currently. Mm-hmm. Like, because at Movement, you they like sometimes take out this part of the wood, turns it into an arch and stuff. So it would require like reassembling that, putting holds up." And they're like, oh, "Okay." Do you think they could put it up for me? Mm-hmm. I need, oh, I need to train and I was like, yeah I, uh. <laughs> it's like a lot of work that mm. takes some hoots, to yeah, mm-hmm. and they're like but uh, but I'm competing for the u s and China and I was like, I'm so sorry I, I don't think we'll do that
1: <laughs> yeah that's well, that's another way the climbing industry is in its infancy right that the USA like team members aren't supported <laughs> in those ways like hes. Sh- That person, he or she, should have been able to call USA Climbing offices and be like, I need to train. I'm in Denver. Where do I go? Mm -hmm. And they should have a database. They say, Jim X, Y, or Z has a speed wall. Get in contact with them.
2: And I would say we're right there now. This is, what, a year and a half, two years ago, probably? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, pre-Olympic announcement, USA Climbing was focused on just growing the sport of climbing through basically bouldering and sport. Mm -hmm. Um, and now that it's in the Olympics in this combined format, um, there are tons of discussions around how to best train the athletes and they have created a high performance commission like you would see in skiing or, um, in track and field or any of that. And the goal is to take the highest performing athletes and provide them with opportunities to train at facilities that are geared towards the Olympic playing field. And pay them? I don't know, I would be speaking um, off of assumption if I were to say what the payment is or any of that stuff, but if I were to speak off of assumption, there (laughs) will be travel stipends and things of that nature to help support these athletes, but I don't know what exactly that looks like. If it's, you know, here's $5,000 a year for a salary to do whatever you need to do to train, then that's not very effective. I mean, no. it's better than nothing, obviously, but at the same time, you can't expect an athlete to be the best that they can possibly be when they have to work a job. I mean, yeah, I feel that every day. I think it's a fucking outrage that USA
1: Climbing. Um, well, that's a little bit hyperbolic. <laughs> I don't think it's an
0: outrage. Cool your jets, Dave. Sorry, dude. Sorry.
1: Um, I I think it is slightly outrageous that you that um athletes need to start kickstarters and gofundme's to like wear the american flag on their chest and climb in the world cup or mm-hmm. i'm sure it'll
2: change with the olympics but that just strikes me as bizarre where do you think that money should come from cuz uh, it currently doesn't exist is the issue they don't have just a, this you know a million dollars to devote to athletes now currently with the olympic announcement they're getting there but in the past there there wasn't funding that was that was present that they could say, Oh, well here's all this money. Let's allocate it this way because I've been on the side for the longest time of thinking, why do we not support our athletes the way that the Austrian Federation or the German Federation or the Swiss Federation supports their athletes? Yep. And the reality is that they have these national federations, these Alpine federations. So basically what you would be looking at is the American Alpine club or the access fund, more likely American Alpine club Mm -hmm. in this country would basically be tasked with building facilities that are for top level athletes to train at, funding them to go and compete for the US, right? All mm-hmm. of these things, that's what exists in the other countries. And this doesn't exist in the US or at we're least We're not hasn't. close to that. I I don't think maybe we're in the uh we're
1: on the beach, you know, right now, but we haven't gone inland when it comes to that. I used to think mm-hmm. And uh, I agree with you that I hope that that matures, mm-hmm. that some sort of federation paradigm comes to, into being. But uh, I always thought that, I mean, I was in the outdoor industry for over a decade. Um, there is, these companies do have money for their charter athletes. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say charter, but I don't know how, how else to couch that term. Um, for their high-end athletes, um, that they should allocate funds to, to them to pursue competition when you're Mm -hmm. wearing any
2: competition. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you know, sorry, do you know what it's like in other sports, like say swimming or wrestling or any other Olympic? Well, let's talk about surfing. Yeah. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars funneled into
1: surfing events.
2: Coming from where?
1: Coming from reef. Okay. So, so corporate sponsors. Yeah. Corporate sponsorship. Funnels huge, huge purses mm-hmm. that allow these surfers to be surfers, and that is it. Right, you don't need another job. The purse at a climbing event—I don't know what they are—but
2: relatively twenty thousand is pretty standard. Twenty thousand for uh, a national championship. yeah for a standard purse,
1: that's pretty good. But that's,
2: that's not, it's split 10,000 and 10,000. That's not the,
1: the best
2: surfer in America pulling in 5 million a year. Correct. You know, but But those athletes are, are collecting from their sponsors like surfers would as well. Yep. The issue at this point, as it relates to the surfing climbing relationship is that climbing doesn't have these companies like reef and O'Neill pumping money into the sport because we're not as big as surfing. We don't exist in the same capacity as surfing does. In the future, will it? Absolutely. We'll have more than just the North Face supporting USA climbing. I think the North Face donates, you know, is the title sponsor of USA climbing and is somewhere it's in the six figures what they donate to USA climbing, right? And that that's their annual thing that they do mm-hmm. to support this sport. But where where are other companies like, you know, of the caliber of the North Face well i mean there are there is
1: Adidas now, which mm-hmm. owns five ten and they have their own Terex line of climbing. I can
2: see them becoming a big player, and there is bigger than reef mm-hmm. Adidas and North Face have exclusivity rights against one another basically so that <laughs> that that wouldn't work <laughs> all right, yeah, you son of a bitch <laughs> stop it um
1: I don't know how it w- would work I mean I'm coming from a bit of uh, a neophyte um Location in my argument, but I I just sense that there is money out there that companies. We talked about this with Tyler, Tyler Mm -hmm. Williams. And the only way that I can see uh, these big companies not giving money to these athletes to go out and perform for them and for the country, but you know, if it's a national championship, just for them, is that they don't see a return on investment. Correct. And I I do not have a solution for that. I don't know what Mm -hmm. a company would need to see or how you even account for a return on investment for an athlete's performance. How do you quantify the views of somebody climbing and we'll stick with 510, 510, shoes? How does Adidas quantify that?
2: Right. So there, there are two ways that I've seen. One is basically giving money to an event or to an organization to help them create a cash purse, right? What we see with the North Face and USA Climbing. The other is sponsored athletes, right? Uh, La Sportiva and Sasha or Adam Andra and Black Diamond, right? Mm -hmm. They're getting paid as individuals to go out and to, to represent that brand. And each one of those has merit, but one is a more obvious avenue for the athlete, right? Which is I have a sponsor, they write me a check every year, they cover all my travel, they give me all this gear, right? And the difference I would say is that climbing, similar to surfing actually, competition climbing is by far and away the minority of our sport. Right. Outdoor climbing is where people get noticed. Thank God. It's where they make their real money from, right? Adam Andra winning the world championships was great and I'm sure that black diamond was excited, but Adam Andra climbing silence was infinitely. Or climbing the Dawn wall in eight days. Exactly. (laughs) Both those things are worth far more to that brand than him winning some competition and so i think that's where when we look at competitions in the u.s team and all the money and the exposure and all those Mm -hmm. things they're just not as great as the exposure of daniel woods climbing v16 right it's it's just a different level of exposure absolutely i totally you're not i mean you're gonna get
1: spreads in magazines if you're climbing the don wall in six days you know i agree with that i guess just thinking about the Olympics and how America lags behind some other countries Mm -hmm. in federation support or just fundamental support. Mm -hmm. It has me wondering how the industry could do a better job.
2: And I think the Olympics will have a profound effect on that. I don't see how it wouldn't because the exposure is going to be so great. And in fact, I'm certain that companies like black diamond who sponsor Sean Bailey and Claire Burfine are, really investing in those athletes to have a presence at the Olympics. Yeah. I don't see any way that they wouldn't. Yeah. I don't know. Give us money. <laughs>
1: Give us money. Thunder yeah, clean please. needs money.
0: I kind of want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier about how you personally also feel the effects of um, not necessarily being able to just pursue climbing solely based off like sponsorships, I guess. You, you kind of mentioned that earlier. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, um, you strike me as someone who could potentially do that. You know, you've climbed grades at the limit of sport and bouldering. And I'm just curious how you kind of ended up on the path you're on, where, like, was there a moment where you were like, I'm about to go full in on just pursuing climbing solely? Or, you know, you were like, but then you you kind of chose root setting as well. And I'm just curious, like... Mm -hmm. How did that all come together for you?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And there was a moment. Um, and the moment for me was I um, I finished my junior year of high school. Um, at the time, I'd just come back from Australia competing in a Youth Worlds where I made the final, which was my only goal was to make finals Sick. in Youth Worlds. I was really excited. Yeah. Um, and I was going to take my remaining high school credits over the summer and graduate a year early and see what climbing would offer me, right? See what I could do. Um, I'd just taken a trip to Switzerland for about a month with a a guy who is a professional climber um, and that was an amazing experience. But I got back from that experience, going to Switzerland, just climbing, being out there, and I was getting ready to move to Colorado. And my dad sat me down and my dad, first of all, he's a he's a general surgeon, so he's been through a ton of school. He views life as um, you need to work hard for what you get. You need to be responsible. You need to you know all of the traditional baby boomer fatherly type of advice things, right? <laughs> and he sat me down, and I couldn't believe it. He said, "What do you want to do with this thing? Is this something that you want to be a professional climber? Like, do you really? Do you feel like that's what you want to do?" And he was open to the idea. If I had said. 100% yes I want to do this he would have been supportive of it and, and I would that have is great. I would imagine he would have been supportive of it financially um, but I don't know that and we had a full conversation around what it means to be a professional climber and for me personally who I am I thrive on systems and routines and schedules and I'm a very like um, I do this at this time and this at that time and my, my escape from that is going outside and climbing, right? And spending a month outside climbing and kind of not knowing what was gonna happen next and how things were gonna to come together was, it was fun and then I was outside, but when it was over, I was ready for it to be over. Wow. Yeah. And I thought about it for a while as we sat there on the couch having the conversation and realized that that lifestyle for me wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't what was going to make me happy as a a 20 year old or 30 year old. And then in addition, the idea of being a professional rock climber is it's scary because you think to yourself, well, what happens if I get injured? Well, what happens if, you know, all of a sudden I just don't have it anymore? I'm, you know, call it 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old, whatever it is. And I'm just not able to, to do Mm -hmm. what, what I used to do. Right. And that was a little bit more trusting the idea of being a professional climber than what I was willing to put into it, right? I, I would rather have my routines, use climbing as my escape, focus on my professional career, grow as a person, and hopefully build something for the rest of my life. Dude, and, that is some
1: serious wisdom,
2: that's
0: some foresight
1: to have when you're 17 years <laughs> yeah. old. If you don't mind me saying, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but that is rare to have that kind of you know,
0: foresight. And I think you hit the you hit it on the head by saying that um, you sort of you have it in some ways a lot better than I think a lot of people who pursue climbing solely, because you have this professional career that supports you and that you now have as a foundation. So you don't have to necessarily worry as much about how's my future financial going to like safety going to be and you still get to now pursue uh climbing as a as a passion hobby and it's not something that you get burnt out by cuz it's all you can do right? right all you have to do so
2: it's almost like I, I just did the reverse route right the longer that i work <laughs> the more time i get to go climbing yeah. right? <laughs> so. So maybe one day when I'm, you know, 45, 50 years old, I'll have worked as a professional and sure, will I be as strong as I could have been when I was 27 years old? Like, mm, probably not, but I'm going to work as hard as I can to make sure that I'm as close to as strong as I possibly can be as a 30 year old or 40 year old or 50 year old. And as I continue to get older, I get more opportunity to go climb because I've continued to grow as a professional and create situations for myself that allow me the opportunity to go climbing. I'm dumb compared to this guy.
0: (laughs) Some good lessons, I think. Those are good lessons.
1: Well, let's talk about your career. Let's talk about what drew you. I mean, you said you started
2: setting when you were like 14 or 15, Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure anything drew you to it. Yeah, I mean, what drew me to route setting was I worked at a gym where my mentor at the time um, was the head setter, head coach, general manager of the gym, right? Classic early 2000s climbing gym. Probably barely breaking even, right? Nobody even knew how to do any accounting or anything like that. He had <laughs> he had four four different titles at the gym, um, but he he was the route setter, and and I was always interested in it. I would beg my parents to take me to the gym seven days a week. They would take me five or six. I would get there most days right after school, 4 o'clock, and he would still be setting, and then we would go into coaching, right, into practice and all of that. And so, I would join him either in kind of for running or helping to set or that kind of thing and he saw i took a keen interest in all of it and realized that i was getting to the point where i was climbing at a level that he wasn't the most comfortable setting right Mm -hmm. he couldn't you know this is 2004 or 2005 he couldn't set v11 or v12 on in the gym or you know 513 plus um and not invest his entire day in it right so he had this this whole commercial business to operate and was like look if you want to come in and set some stuff for yourself i feel like you know what you're doing i'll be right here with you go for it right and so i kind of parlayed that experience along with being like a hold washer and all that kind of stuff as a kid into i turned 16 and just started getting paid cash to set roots and boulders i got paid three dollars a boulder and seven dollars a root um <laughs> as a 16 old. Yeah. You know. Um, and, and then very quickly after that, uh, he, he took another job and left. And I think when I was about 17, I was saddled with being the head setter of this gym and I, it was just all that I <laughs> knew how to do. Right. I was like, well, I finished school now and I'm kind of setting this gym and, you know, I get paid like 50 bucks in cash a week and It felt at the time time money, (laughs) it felt at the time like, well, this is all I want to be doing. And sure. It was hard. Like, yeah, there were days where I was like, God, I'm destroyed. Like I can't even, I don't even have energy to climb or anything like that, but it was what I wanted to do. And so when I had the conversation with my dad knew I was going to move to Colorado and moved out here, fortunately through USA climbing, I had met the founders of Movement, Mike and Emily Moulter, mm-hmm. because they basically started USA Climbing as it is currently, and they ran that for a few years, and that's how I got to meet them was from doing all the comps as a kid. Yeah. So I moved to Boulder, and my parents were they were like, "You you should talk to Mike and Emily about you know getting a job at Movement." I'm like, "Oh, they don't even know who I am. <laughs> like, they would never remember me." And so I reached out, and and Mike fortunately was like, "I mean, we're we're doing construction right now in this gym in Boulder." And maybe you know I can get you a job. I know the general contractor's my brother-in-law, so um, we'll see what what we can get for you. So I showed up as a, um, I think at the time, eighteen-year-old, and he gave me a broom and was like, "Here you go. I'll give you ten bucks an hour, or maybe it was even less, nine bucks an hour, and you're gonna sweep." It's important to note that at this point, I believe Ryan also had a broken foot. I did. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh... <laughs> yeah i broke my ankle whenever uh, i went back to texas to see my folks and to compete in a regionals um i was resetting the gym after which is funny i competed as a youth competitor in the event and then after the event was over was hired to reset the gym (laughs) and i was being young and dumb and and was showing my friend how to uh, this move that i set and i slipped off one of the holds and swung and fell into a ladder and Broke my talus bone in my right ankle and oh man. It was bad. I have two screws and so I showed back up. I showed, so the, the sweeping of the floor was before the ankle, right? Oh, okay. I had swept the floor. I had done like blocking in the bathrooms. I had like poured grout and stuff like yeah. that, like rolled concrete blankets and fixed silt fences. And yeah. I mean, just the, the bottom of the barrel construction jobs, Handyman, right? Handyman dude. <laughs> bottom of the barrel jobs. Right. And so I leave to go back home and I break my ankle and now I'm sidelined. I have surgery. I've got a boot, like I can't climb sideline for, I think it was two months. And during this time, the the climbing walls are being finished, right? Like all this stuff is is getting done, and I get back and I'm terrified. I don't have a job anymore, right? No. So terrified. I, I'm I'm not gonna. They're not gonna hire me because the last two months I've been gone, right? No. I've been injured. So I show back up and they're installing the flooring. This is before gyms were really into the idea of like hiring companies like Flashed or or any of the others mm-hmm. to put in their flooring. And so we're cutting foam with like a turkey cutter, right? <laughs> I've got this boot. I'm like one one leg hopping around in the gym, just trying to prove that I'm useful, right? Just trying to prove, like, please, Put like, that d- boy trying, give me, give me a job. You know, I can hardly walk right now, but it'll get better. And sure enough, that that mentality and that attitude paid off. And Mike uh, mentioned to me, you know, what do you want to do when we open? I said, well, I really want to be a route setter. I was a setter at my previous gym. Was actually kind of the headsetter for a little while, but it didn't really count. Cause and who was going to be the headsetter at the time? Mike the, was. Mike was headsetter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mike's background um, from back in the day of Chicago, where he grew up, and then the yeah. BRC, he was a route setter for forever and ever. And he said to me, you know, like the standard we expect here is pretty high, and I can't guarantee you a job, but I'll um, I'll let you put a few climbs up, and and we'll see how it goes. And so for the preset, I put up I think like four routes and maybe like seven or eight boulders. And after that we got ready to open and he was like, we'll give you a job. You're
1: on the crew. Wow, man, did he mentor you at all through the process? Like he was giving you feedback the whole time you're setting routes, all that good stuff. Yeah.
2: The entire time. And I, I worked under Mike for a little while and then Mike kind of stepped back a little bit and brought on Justin Shong to be the head setter. And I got a lot of experience from Justin. Um, what mentors dude. Yeah. Like that's really great. mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, And then at that point in time, you know, I, I was working setting, you know, maybe 15 to 18 hours a week and wasn't really feeling like this was my future. Right. I knew it was what I wanted to do, be a route setter, but it wasn't like just the, you know, the obvious clear path and I don't know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this when they go and try and like follow their passion, right? Mm-hmm. Where they hit this roadblock in realizing like, oh, I'm never gonna make any money at this, right? Like, <laughs> like we all hit that roadblock sooner or later. Yeah, exactly, and, and so it becomes this hard realization of like, well, if I'm not gonna make any money at this, like what am I gonna do? And so I, I tried to go to school, I didn't really care for it, I had a really hard time just going and, <laughs> Um, it it just wasn't really for me. And I just kind of kept pushing and thinking I'm going to be able to be a route setter. And at the time I had moved back to Texas where I grew up and was really doing some soul searching and trying to figure out what the future held for me. How old are you at this time? At this time I am 21. Yeah. Um, and so I'm at the gyms in Texas. I work with a good friend of mine, um, Chris LaCrasto to help, Build their multi gym setting program. Uh, I'm coaching in the evenings. I'm probably working, you know, between 30 and 40 hours a week as just an hourly employee. And I'm there all the time, anyways, because I just, where else would I want to be? Mm-hmm. And the whole time thinking, like, man, I really hope that this can turn into something. And sure enough, I get a phone call from Mike Moulter and he's like, hey, you know, we're, we're looking for a head setter for the gym in Boulder. We're opening a new one in Denver. And we want you to come on and be the headsetter for this gym and for the new gym when it opens. And I'm like, that's it, man. Like, yeah, this is it. Like, you know, like the, the light bulb went off, and I was like, here we go. This is my, my opportunity. And that's it, afforded you a career path,
1: meaning the money was good enough. At the time, the it, location is obviously yeah, world class. Yep. Yeah.
2: At the time, it was. Um, it was adequate, I would say. The compensation was adequate. Did he talk to you about future growth and things like that? So right? so whenever I, I had a video chat with them to basically, you know, formal interview, right? Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I drafted a letter to them as the kind of from the guidance of my dad saying, you know, like, I am thrilled by this opportunity. I can't wait to come back to Colorado and work with you guys again. I really believe in what you do. But I want you to know that I'm the kind of person that doesn't just cash paychecks and clock out. That's Mm -hmm. not who I am and that's not what I ever want to be or will be. And so I know it's not on the table now, but I want you to know that I'm interested in the opportunity to grow with this business, whether it be through sweat equity or profit sharing or any, any type of opportunity like that. I'm going to prove to you guys that I'm worth it. Right. And they were excited and they were like, okay, great. You know, like we'll see how it goes. And so I moved to Colorado and accept a job for a fairly, I mean, as a 24 year old, right? My first salaried position, it wasn't bad. It yeah. certainly wasn't bad. Like I could afford to live. I could afford to buy food. I didn't have to take a second job. And you were in Boulder or Denver? I was at the time I moved to Broomfield actually, because oh, yeah. I knew we it's were a opening cheaper. the gym. Well, I had a 700 square foot studio that was, um, $13.75 a month uh, in Broomfield. Wow. Yep. Fucking Denver, man. Mm-hmm. And uh and looking at it now, it's like hilarious because that is <laughs> that's that's more than I pay in rent now, currently. Oh, really? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> because I had no I, I was like, oh man, I got this job, like I got Wall- a salary <laughs> now, like let me get this amazing studio. Like, 700 whole month. square feet yep. all to myself. Exactly. <laughs> So anyways, I I came back with this mentality of like, I'm just going to prove myself worth. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to show them that, that they made the right decision. And it's kind of just been history ever since. I've just been hungry and and fighting my way through the the process of getting better, both as a professional, as a route setter, as a mentor. Um, And it's been, it's been great. I, I can't, can't say a single bad thing about the journey that I've had other than it's a lot of work. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's for everyone, but mm-hmm. if you want something, not to sound cliche, if you want something bad enough and are willing to trust that it might work, then you can do it. Yeah.
1: And Mike's a loyal guy. If mm-hmm. he sees uh, drive and talent in you,
0: yep. he's going to keep you on board. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've, you've thing. recently got promoted too to like the, it's an additional role, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're the, uh. Strategy
2: manager. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've been fortunate to get an opportunity to see the things that I and evaluate the things that I gravitate to most. Um, with our route setting program for a long time, I was very like data driven and analytics driven and development driven around like hard numbers and facts and and things that were quantifiable. Mm-hmm. And so I realized quickly about myself that I enjoy spending time you know, evaluating data and building plans towards growth and things of that nature. So I sat down with Mike and really and said, I think I know what my highest and best use is in addition to director of route setting. And maybe in the future, who knows if this would ever be the case. But if we if we had call it 15 gyms at some point in time, my ability to be director of route setting may not be there anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. We may have Mm -hmm. three or four director of route settings that work regionally or something like that. Right. And so I envision myself as more strategic focused. Right. Like what are the trends in the industry? How are we going to continue to grow? Mm -hmm. What are the next moves? How do we evaluate our business operations from both like staffing to, you know, financials to, you know, growth opportunities, all of those things. And so I sat down with them and said, I envision this as being something that could grow. And I feel like for now it'll start as like maybe eight hours of my call it 40 hours a week.
1: Um, and as you we, just did air quotes on that 40, I don't know what to, yeah. I don't know what to think about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I'd, I'd probably work an average of 10 hours a day. Whoa, really? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to sidetrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, I love it. So It doesn't always feel yeah. like work. And That's a lot good. of it is spent actually bolting holds to the wall still, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, but they said, sure, like if this is something that you see, like, let's talk about it and kind of flesh it out and make sure that it it has bearing with what we're trying to do. And then we'll put it in your, your, you know, contract, if you will. Um, and that's how the role kind of came about. Just basically realized, oh, I would be quite good at this. And I think that we could
0: use it. I think it goes along well with what you're saying, how you're super into like systems Mm -hmm. and just, you're a pretty analytical guy. I think we can all agree on that. So mm-hmm.
1: I, I want to get in the minutia of setting a bit too. Mm-hmm. You want to do that? I'm game So, it. um, how would you describe <clears throat> the practice of route setting itself? Like, is it an art? Is it, um, a science? Is it a practice of understanding climber climbing psychology or the climber psychology? Is it like, corporate feng shui for your guests? Is it none of those? Is it a little of all of those? How would you, in your own terms? Yeah,
2: I would say in some capacities, it's a little of all of those. Um, To me, the goal of route setting is to provide an experience to your communities that is world class, right? Like that's basically my department, the route setting department at Movement. That is our mission statement is to provide a world class climbing experience for our communities. And the key there is for our communities because every community is different. Mm. So as a route setter, you're constantly being tasked with evaluating what the needs are of your community and trying to provide that, right? A lot of times the the you know, the history of route setting has been I know because I'm a route setter, you don't because you're a climber. And so I'm going to put it on the wall and you're going to like it. And if you don't, it's just because you don't know. Suck it up, right? dickhead. <laughs> it's my route. Um, yep. it comes. <laughs> that, that kind of approach is this very outdated. Um, yeah. Climbers are far more educated. They understand now why they like things, what they like and what they don't like. And so our job is to be better at providing those things for our community. Now, are we always trying to cater to them and be as it would be called a yes man? No, of course not. The, you can't do that, The right? spirit of climbing is pushing your boundaries, right? Of like getting out of your comfort zone. And those things are, are tremendously valuable and have their place in the gym and especially in route setting. But if you're not listening to the people that come in your doors and what they're looking for, then I don't think you're doing your job correctly, right? Like what business is just totally disregarding consumer feedback? and saying like, no, no, we hear that you want it this way, but we actually prefer it another way. <laughs>
1: yeah, all those businesses go out of
2: business. Exactly, <laughs> right? So that's kind of how I view route setting is, is in a way, it's, we're, we're constantly trying to provide for our communities what their needs are, all the while pushing just a little bit more to show them these are the things that maybe are, are beyond you, but are attainable right? Like you don't currently have this requisite skill set. You don't know how to do these moves. You don't understand how to, how to like solve this problem, Mm -hmm. but we're going to give you the tools and teach you how to do that so that
0: you can become a better rock climber. The most, one of the most addictive parts of climbing is that feeling of Mm -hmm. just that tiny bit of progression whenever you get it.
1: Yep. You want to piggyback on that? Like you're just kind of starting a setting career Feedy. Do you have any thoughts on what your responsibility is as a route setter? For example, you know, route setters have have to make uncomfortable lines that are maybe goofy and uh, climbers aren't going to like, right? That's part of your repertoire. Yeah. And then also you got the parkour style. But what's your responsibility so as a route setter? I
0: see myself as I'm just trying to to keep up because I feel like everyone I set with, like Ryan, have just so much more experience. It's fun to see the difference in levels of setters too. I'm like, I would say I'm pretty much the beginner. Yeah. Um, And you can just see the difference in like, when someone's setting at like um, our head setter level and then Ryan's level, it's just, it's um, it's really impressive. I don't know. When I set, it's sort of just like, all right, just make sure that things work. That it's not like, <laughs> I don't want anybody to break their leg. I don't want anybody to like get on this and be like, "What is this garbage?" Right. So obviously, there's a little bit of like trying to like grow myself so that I can do, as Ryan said, push the the community. But for me, it's mainly just watching and learning and trying to keep up is what how it describes yeah,
1: my Yeah, emulating mm-hmm. the good things, getting yeah. rid of the bad habits. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, what do you think about? Like uh, what? Mirakami wrote a book. Um, Hideki Mirakami wrote a book called "What I Think About When I Think About Running."
2: Like, what do you think about when you think about setting?
1: I know that you kind mean of
2: when a, I, no, it's I can go with that. Do you mean whenever I'm actually putting holds on the wall, or when just, you're actively setting, or? or when you're thinking Mm -hmm. about
1: setting or the future of setting Mm -hmm. or how you can become a better setter. Mm -hmm. Any of those, take
2: any direction you want. So one thing that, that has really come about for me, especially in the last call it like two years, I would say, is the idea of creating something in a fluid concept and not necessarily in a vacuum of a singular idea, right? And so what I mean by that is a lot of times route setters will say, I have this idea, I'm going to, let's say, set a rose move, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, like here's the feet, everyone grabs his crimp with the right hand and everyone rose moves underneath, right? To me, that that's something that you have to have that kind of repertoire as a setter. You have to understand how moves work. But the idea of forcing a climber to do something a specific way is a lot of like square peg, round hole type of idea, right? all climber body types are different. Everybody Mm -hmm. approaches climbing differently with different strengths and different weaknesses. And so for me, one of the biggest things that I've really started gravitating to is the fluid concept of putting something on the wall and then more so developing how it moves after it's on the wall, and all the while ensuring that there are options, right? And in Ah. in route setting, that that's like not that's a very foreign concept. Yeah, it sounds forboatin. It's force this move to do it this way, and to me that that doesn't. First of all, that's not how rock climbing is, right? Unless you're at the V V thirteen or like five fourteen plus level, like there are options. There's always something else to stand on. Somebody can find some little thing to grab, Mm -hmm, right? right? And that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of climbing for a lot of people is oh, you climb that route? How'd you do this section, right? You get into this 20-minute conversation about beta on a route that you've already done that somebody else is trying, and that that conversation brings people together. It's like part of the beauty of climbing or the joy of climbing is like yeah. connecting with people on those things. And so as a setter, if you can be conscientious of all of the different demographics of people and how they approach a problem and know like, okay, this is supposed to be V3. You can do it with this toe hook sequence right here. Odds are a 3 climber probably isn't going to have the requisite technical ability to read or accomplish this toe hook section here. But if you do it that way, it's like maybe a little bit easier. Whereas now you have this other option of like, let me instead of the toe hook, grab this intermediate, do this bump, walk the feet over, come in, right? It's a little bit more involved, but there's options, right? Like that's what exists in rock wow. climbing. And so for me as a root setter, like this is my big push currently is allowing the climber to have options, but requiring them to make decisions. And the decision piece of things is extremely valuable because you notice when newer climbers get on the wall, they just grab what's in front of them, Mm -hmm. right? They don't, the the concept of making a decision while they're on the wall has not yet come to their like ability level, right? Especially like- Before they get on the route, right? Mm-hmm. Their decisions are hold by hold. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and they reach up as high as their hands yep. can go, and then they're like, "Okay, now where do I move my feet?" Yeah, right? I was that guy. Yep, we all yeah, we, we all are. were exactly. Yeah. Grab
0: the bolt holes. Yep. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Oh, well, I was gonna. And that leads me to a question I was gonna ask: like, how does it feel when you get a route cheated or broken? Like, does that?
2: I think I know your answer now, but does that like disappoint you, frustrate you, or excite you? The only time I would, so I don't like the idea of thinking that something's been cheated, right? I like the idea more that like somebody found a way that suits them best, right? So an example being I set this problem that was geared towards being accessible to people between like four foot and five foot six or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? And it starts out kind of on the sidewall of a dihedral. And the first move is you kind of stem into this dihedral. And if you're shorter, you can kind of push into this corner and step a foot out. Whereas if you're taller, it's really hard to get into the corner and step your foot out. So I know all of this going into it, right? But I get into the corner and I look and I see the top of the wall and I'm like, I just don't see any way somebody's going to be able to just like stem this corner and just reach to the top. Sure enough, we open up the zone. This guy is like six foot two or something like that. And he's (laughs) like, he's like, oh, I just totally broke this boulder. I'm like, well, show me. And he gets into the corner and he falls like trying to do the dihedral. And he's like, well, I did it early. I'm like, I'm sure that you did. But I like keep in mind that there's you, who's six foot plus, right? Yeah. And then there's somebody else who's four foot six, right? They're never going to be able to do what you just did. But they have an option that's equally viable, maybe more viable for them than it is for you because you can't fit into this corner and do the sequence this way. So to me, like cheating a boulder or breaking a boulder or a route is more... Prominent when the setter Doesn't think of all of the Possible options right and So if you think through All of the different ways that somebody could Possibly do this boulder and you Accept that they're all equally viable Then nobody should ever cheat a problem Right yeah so God, I'm curious great.
0: About this concept uh, mm-hmm. That you're talking about mm-hmm. how does that Fit in with the with competitive Root setting oh when you're God. setting for nationals Yeah that's mm-hmm.
1: the exact question I was just gonna mm-hmm. Ask <laughs> You meant
0: mm-hmm.
2: that "my That's a great question. But right, like- that is a great question, and in fact, I was anticipating that this would be oh. a, a question. <laughs> no, even before I walked up, is like I knew that we were going to talk God. about route setting, and I knew that the idea of competition versus commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is the, the the reason for a comp versus the reason for commercial climbing are very very different, right? What is success in each one? Well, if we look at commercial setting, commercial climbing, the the main ideas of what success is would be um, people having fun, right? People mm-hmm. wanting to come back, not getting injured, right? Or um, people getting better as climbers, right? Those are all mm-hmm. like pretty standardized ideas as to what success in a commercial gym means from a route setting perspective. Mm-hmm. Certain people will say one's better than the other, right? But we're not gonna dive all the way into that (laughs) commercial or competition route setting rather is geared towards determining who's the best climber on a fair playing field, right? That's always the goal. Mm -hmm. So you're going to set stuff that people aren't going to like, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable, but the best climber should be the one who ends up winning the competition. So those two things fundamentally are completely different, right? So now if we know that to be the case, the idea of forcing a climber to do a certain move or forcing somebody to do something a certain way Mm -hmm. has a lot more validity to it in a competition setting because you're trying to challenge all of the climbers fairly, right? Yeah. So if I wanted to say, look, you have to prove to me that you can jump, right? That's part of this competition Mm -hmm. is you can do a dead point jump, right? that has reason for existing because that's part of climbing and i'm trying to figure out who the best climber actually is so when you look at forcing movement in competition setting it has a lot more bearing and a lot more yeah like reason but the thing that i've started to notice a lot because i'm, I'm as much a student of the game as i am a like a practitioner i watch almost every world cup almost every competition that that's out there that's streamed on the internet i've I watched them oftentimes take notes on a lot of them. But what I've noticed is that route setters now are presenting the climber with a decision that they have to make. So they may not be able to read the route completely the right way from the ground. And they may look up and say, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that section of this route, Mm -hmm. but when I get there, I'm gonna have to figure it out, right? And oftentimes there are two, three, four different possibilities, one maybe being easier than the other, Right, but the climber is tasked with making that decision, and they have to be the ones to make quick decisions, be effective, confident, and efficient on the wall. And that right there is part of climbing as well. Yeah, part of being the best climber is being confident, being efficient, right? Like making quick, good, solid decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, that I would say, when you look at in addition to the forcing moves idea has a ton of validity as well, which is making decisions
1: yeah it's kind of the climber psychology mm-hmm. thing I was getting at mm-hmm. does
2: psychology go into setting at all and obviously it does yeah a ton and and you know I'll put something on the wall or somebody else will put something on the wall and it'll supposed to be V2 right mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a V2 and we look at it and say man this is amazing look how cool this boulder is. And we're doing, like, heel hook, rock over mantle, like, you know, palm press, like that kind of thing. It's like, okay, well, the you know, you guys all climb at least, call it V6, right? Is a V2 climber really going to understand this? So now you start putting yourself in the shoes of that climber and starting to try and understand the psychology of how a V2 climber would approach this problem. It's got to be difficult. It is. I I mean, I think.
1: (laughs) Even though we've all been there, certainly – Not that long ago, Mm -hmm. but, uh,
2: yeah, it's gotta be different, uh, difficult to put on that hat again, but that's the joy in it is like trying to evaluate the psychology of each individual person, you know, or each individual demographic, let's say, and understand how they're going to approach certain
0: aspects of of solving a problem or climbing a route. It's a tricky puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That level of setting where you essentially present the the climber with like, with like hazy options. It's definitely love a level of setting that, like,
1: I don't understand. That's yet. just my favorite <laughs> aspect of mm-hmm. climbing in a gym, and you know, I feel that once again, I'm not blowing smoke, but movement does that really, really well, and Thank you. that's likely thanks to you. Um, is that many of the boulder problems at the Rhino facility just down the street from us, mm-hmm. dude? I mean, there are just a potpourri of beta options mm-hmm. you can take. Mm-hmm. And that's unusual. Mm-hmm. And I like it. I don't like being forced into a rose move. I suck at rose moves. Mm-hmm. So forced yeah, into a... Yeah, you suck at them, Dave. You've seen me do them. You know <laughs> the truth.
2: Um, but that's climbing, right? Like, that's climbing yeah, outside. And that's a huge that's exactly part of right. the, 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 like, attraction to climbing is that I can make it my own way. And rock forms the way it forms, right? Humans, well, yep. with some exceptions of, obviously, chipping and drilling and that kind of stuff. Rock forms the way it forms, yep. right? And so when a climb is all natural, you can tell the difference from a climb that's like totally manufactured because humans have this idea of like, I'm trying to make this this way, right? Yeah. Success to me is making it work this way. And that's not how rock forms. It's not how climbing is intended to be done is you must use this, then this, then this, then this. Maybe in the past it was thought of that way. But, I'm sure, but nowadays it just doesn't feel to me like a true reflection of what climbing actually is to just tell the climber like you must do this this way. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think we have a good idea of what like brings you joy in setting. Mm-hmm. That's readily apparent. What <clears throat> gives you like night terrors? When you <laughs> what thing on a, let's say you're watching somebody climb one of your
2: problems, what Mm -hmm. would be your worst nightmare? Well, the first, the obvious one would just be somebody getting injured or something like that, right? Like that's the worst, you never wanna see that. But um, I think, you know, I had a conversation with one of our setters um, the other day and he was talking to me about how when he comes to set with me, he feels like he can try things and maybe they don't work, but we'll four on them and we'll fix them and we'll get them right, Mm -hmm. you know? Whereas when he's at the other gyms and he's the one more, the senior setter, um, he feels a lot more hesitant to try something um, that may not work. So he sticks to what he knows, right? Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't want to be the guy who's the most experienced one who set something that's just a total flop, right? Oh, yeah, I try to set this cool thing and it just completely doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then that makes him feel self conscious that he's not an adequate leader or he's not a skilled enough route setter. The perception of everybody else is like, oh man, so and so doesn't know what he's doing. How'd you right? get that job? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so one of the fears that I have, or, or, you know, maybe continue to have, is just that the exploration of creativity is stifled by the idea that you have to do things the right way and they have to always work, right? The Ryan Sewell way, the movement way. Yeah, exactly. And so what I what I would rather is give the setters the, the space to try things that may not work and know that they feel comfortable with them not working and know that we can get to them actually being a legitimate boulder or a legitimate root. Yeah.
1: Is that... Makes that, that makes perfect sense, man. It's just
2: a, you're opening a creative space that mm-hmm. allows failure on the road to success. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that would be the fear is that that creative space doesn't exist or that I myself am creating a culture where people don't feel comfortable failing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, truly. I mean, that's,
1: I think that's every leader's business leader, or whatever, a management leader, that if you don't give people the, room mm-hmm. to expand themselves into failure
2: mm-hmm. because and they're never going to take chances and i've failed numerous times i mean it like especially a lot lately in trying to be really creative with the route setting you put something on the wall and you're like oh i, I think it's going to work like this and then it just straight up doesn't it's just a fucking mess yeah and you, <laughs> you can either decide at that point in time like okay, I'm going to get really down on myself and I'm going to just strip all the holds off in a fury of anger. And I'm going <laughs> to reset some straightforward ladder and call it done. Or you can trust in your own skills as a setter and as a climber to fix the problem. Right. Yeah.
0: That's going to be one of the most, uh, the worst feelings though, when the t- the clock is ticking. Cause when you're setting in a gym, you know, you do have some time restraints. Yep. Yeah. And you have a boulder that is just not going down easy. Yeah. And, uh, You just frantically like, oh man, I just need it to work. Like Mm -hmm. massaging
1: it into shapes. (laughs) Yeah.
2: That's a time that takes time, man. Yeah. That right there is the difference in an experienced setter versus a lesser experienced setter is the ability and confidence to know that you can fix something no matter how broken it actually is. Yeah. Definitely. And it's it's hard to get to that point because it's it's all in your head right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not like you're learning some new way to bolt a hold on the wall. That's going to fix all of your problems, right? Yeah. You're purely understanding and trusting your own abilities to make something work that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so creativity based too. Mm You know, there's no right answer, no wrong answer. It's just, feels good.
0: Yeah. I always find, so I occasionally, I set roots and boulders at movement and I've definitely find the days before a boulder setting day are much more stressful for me just because I know each boulder has to be uh, a lot more unique than just say like you're setting a 510B, Mm -hmm. I guess. Like Mm -hmm. obviously you you wanna make that 10B interesting and unique, but setting six distinct boulders that um, capture the climber's attention, that requires like, you're you're hoping like, oh man, I hope it's one of those days where like, I just, I'm feeling it, you know? Whereas Mm -hmm. if you go up there and you don't have ideas it can be a lot more mm-hmm. of a roadblock. Yeah. I imagine something that comes
1: with more
0: years of setting
1: for you, Fede. I have no idea. Once again, I don't know. I'm not a setter, but you eventually over the years, you just keep sticking new arrows in your quiver, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's yeah. The you, there's more tools in your toolbox. So when you reach a point of frustration, you're like, well, I've encountered this like 200 times before. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Let's, let's grab some, some of the old tools out. Right no that's absolutely spot on That's
1: exactly how it works jeez i should be a setter yeah (laughs) um we're going long but i i want to wrap it up with um
0: we have to talk about the. yeah
1: i want to wrap it up with a story ryan yeah tell us we me and Feedy were talking about this before you came over and Feedy's like have you ever had a near-death experience dude and i was like "I, i wish but no i don't i don't think i have and
2: wish.
1: <laughs> well, no, you know, I can say that cuz I haven't. So, yeah, it'd be awesome, but Yeah, and
0: Infusion well, never has either. The like Tyler, the the last person we interviewed also, I mean, he had a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. And obviously you don't like really want it, but at the same you time wanted, you kind of want it. You kind of want it people after near the, near-death experiences have these like huge moments of insight that like permanently change their like life, mm-hmm. their drive and can just like foster these moments of like immense personal growth. Mm-hmm. So you have had one of those. <laughs> I have. And I was, um,
2: I was younger. I was, I think, uh, 16 at the time. So my life as a, as any 16 year olds is mentally volatile, right? Like you're all over the place <laughs> mentally. That's a very <laughs> diplomatic way to say it. <laughs> yep, you're all over the place all the time. You don't know what you're doing half the time. So yeah. for me, and I'll go through the whole story, but for me at the end of it, there were certainly some takeaways, but I don't think it's the same as if I were to have a near death experience now. Right. Because my life feels a lot more solidified and something as, as drastic as a near death experience as an adult, I feel like would have profound effects on every single day of how you live your life. Yeah. For me, it was more of like a philosophical approach to life and that, I look at it like, yeah, you don't, you just don't know if you're ever going to get this opportunity again. So why waste it doing something you really hate, you know? And we, we all
1: feel immortal when we're young, right? We Mm -hmm. feel invincible, right? We don't understand maybe even today that the whole notion of death and what Mm -hmm. having a blank slate can be. Um, Did that, and I'll let you get to your story, but I want to piggyback with what you just said or unpack it Fidi. Let's unpack, let's that.
2: unpack, let's that unpack
0: that a little bit. bit. Um,
1: do you feel like you?
0: <laughs> Ryan is actually the originator. originator oh, is that right? That phrase? I believe. I don't know
1: whether to thank you or That's curse awesome. you for that. It's <laughs> yeah. um, so good though. Right. It is good. <laughs> um, did that, did you kind of get a notion of those feelings of invincibility leaving you? or were you still too young to even feel that? At that point? No, I
2: certainly did. Yeah. 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 I mean, 16, it, was, it was humbling, yeah. yeah. Uh, to go through an experience where, you know, the people who are closest to you are, they're not sure if you're gonna make it, mm-hmm. right, is, is uh, it's eye-opening, it's challenging. And, you know, for me, the way that my experience kind of happened, a lot of it I don't remember, um, but, Whenever I was kind of getting my feet back under me, it was it was as stark and an, an eye open, as stark an experience as you can imagine. So, yeah. to get to the story, um, whenever I was sixteen years old, um, I went climbing out in Rifle, as I currently do to this day, a lot, um, and I was out there with a couple friends on a week long climbing trip, and everything was great. Drove back to Texas, spent two weeks in Texas, and then actually flew back to Colorado um, to meet up with some friends and then drive to Salt Lake City to the outdoor retailer show. Mm -hmm. So it's now been, since I was in Rifle, um, about two weeks, and I hike all the way up to Upper Chaos, flew into Denver that morning from Dallas sea level, hike up to Upper Chaos, climb all evening till it gets dark, hike down, and go back to my friend's place and go to sleep. And wake up the next day and I just don't feel right I feel like I'm kind of coming down with a bug or something like that Um, my friend's mom makes this wonderful breakfast right eggs and bacon and all this stuff and I take like two bites and I just have totally lost my appetite. I can't eat anything. I just don't feel right. And she of course feels terrible. She's like, Oh my gosh, she doesn't like what I made. And, <laughs> grandma's famous scrambled yeah. didn't work and, on this and, young man. And so I'm so apologetic and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, I just like, <laughs> She's beating I, herself I prom- up in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I promise it's delicious. I just don't, I don't feel very good. So we get in the car and we drive to Salt Lake city and it's mm-hmm. from Denver, you know, it's what seven and a half hours, something mm-hmm. like that. And the whole time I'm in the car, I'm just like sweating and just starting to feel worse. And I'm like, oh, I'm definitely getting sick. We stop to get gas. I call my dad. He's like, you hike to altitude. Your body's just not happy with you. Just drink lots of fluids. And again, my dad is a doctor. So I'm like, sure, you're right. All of my life, he's always known what's going on with mm-hmm. me. If something's wrong, he mm-hmm. knows how to fix it. So I have no reason not to believe him, right? So we get to Salt Lake City. Um, It's probably like four in the afternoon. The friends who I'm with are going to go over to the show and pick up their badges and walk around. And I'm like, ah, guys, I can't. Like, I just really don't, don't feel very good. So I stayed in the room. Maybe two hours go by or so, and I'm getting real bad. Like, really not feeling well. I feel like I'm about to starve to death. I'm like so hungry, even though my appetite was like nothing at breakfast. And so I call them. I'm like, guys, I really need you to bring me some food. Like, I feel awful. They come back with like a burger and fries. I eat a fry and a half and can't eat anything anymore. Oh, and man. I'm like, man, this is like, what is going yeah, on with me? Very unusual. Mm-hmm. Like, and they
1: just experience nausea as well?
2: Yeah, a little bit of nausea. I'm very like sweating a lot. I feel like I have a fever. Um, and so I call my dad again. He basically gives me the same story of like, you you probably have altitude sickness. You really need to hydrate a lot. So spend the night in the hotel room and don't sleep very well. Um, and call him early in the morning. And I'm like, dad, something's not right. I need to go to the hospital. He was like, okay, go to the hospital. Call me when you're there. Give you all the information um, to get checked in. So I call him or I go to the hospital Call my dad, sit in the waiting room for a while. The first thing they do if you've ever checked in an emergency room is they give you a chest X-ray and, you know, they'll yeah. they'll check your pulse and your temperature and all that. So I get checked in. I've got like a temp of 101 or something mm-hmm. and they do a chest X-ray and they come back and they say, we're, we're going to put you in a bed now. Like, OK, what's going on? And they start asking me all these questions as I'm on the phone with my dad. And one of them is, does he have any history of cystic fibrosis? Which if you know what cystic fibrosis is, it's a hereditary disease that you know from basically the time of you know, the first two years of your life that you have it. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it, it basically fills up your lungs to the point where they're extremely cloudy. Um, and I don't know all there is to know about cystic fibrosis, but my dad essentially is laughing. Like you think he's 16 years old and we wouldn't know if he's a youth athlete as well, exactly. Like you think we wouldn't know that and they're like, well, his chest x-ray is extremely cloudy. Like there's something going on in his lungs right now and we don't know what it is. So they just start taking blood and just taking all these different samples and trying to figure out what's going on. They start throwing around Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. They start Mm -hmm. throwing around West Nile virus. And at the time, I'm like, oh my God, West Nile virus. Like people, they don't make it back from West Nile virus. So I'm starting to panic, right? And my dad at the time is thinking, all right, I know what's going on. He has a pulmonary edema, which basically is where you start getting fluid in your lungs. Mm -hmm. Because I think you sound like you know a bit about it. Like your lung kind of collapses or something. It
1: like drowns your lungs. yeah, And that's all occurs because of altitude, you know, mm-hmm. not
2: proper properly acclimatizing. Yeah. I don't know a lot about it, but right. I know that's a general gist of it. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I'm, first of all, I'm at the hospital in Salt Lake City, which is, uh, it's a teaching hospital. So there's a lot of um, docs and residency and mm-hmm. college, you know, um, uh, doctors. And so he's like, these guys, they don't know what they're doing. Like they're trying to tell you all this stuff that you think you have and you don't like, we got to get you out of there. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to say this and this and this to your attending physician. He's going to give you this form that you're going to have to sign against medical will. I've already bought you a plane ticket. I've organized for somebody to your coach to basically take you to the airport. And we're going to get you home to my hospital. And we're going to make sure that everything's okay. Like, all right, fine. So sure enough, I sign out. And And did your
1: coach go with you on this trip? Was...
2: No, he was just there. He's he was a there. sponsored climber who was out at the outdoor retailer show on his own. And he heard that I wasn't feeling good. And he came to the hospital and stayed with me for a little while. Okay, um, And he was the one who kind of helped get me out of the hospital, right? Because at this time, I feel terrible. Yeah. I've been in the hospital now for a day and a half. I'm sweaty. I smell bad. I don't really know what's going on. I'm Again, I'm 16, right? You haven't All eaten by in myself. Like three days. Yeah, I haven't eaten in three days. I'm basically just running on an IV drip, mm-hmm. right? And so they wait for CDC tests to come back just to say that I'm not contagious, right? But they still don't know what's going on. And that's how you get on the plane. Exactly. So yeah. I, can, I can legally leave the hospital, right? Even though I sign out against medical will, if you have something extremely contagious, they won't let you out. Yeah. Um, so that test comes back. We get in the car, get to the airport, and I don't have anything with me other than a CD that has my chest x-rays. And we get my plane ticket and the flight leaves in like 20 minutes, right? Something super, super quick. And we get to security and there's this line of probably 100 people, right? And my coach is like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And he just grabs me by the arm and walks me up to the TSA agent at the front of the line and is like, excuse me, miss. All he has is a CD. His flight leaves in 20 minutes. Will you please let him through? And she looks at me and looks at the people in line and goes, do you guys mind? And all of them are like, no, just let him go. That was the best thing that could have ever happened. God, to me. thank God. I walk down the ter- terminal, get onto the plane. The only ticket available for the flight back that day was a first class ticket. I'm sitting front row, first class next to this businessman, right? Too bad he couldn't enjoy it, man. I'm (laughs) dying. I'm I'm like sweaty, I smell bad, I haven't showered in three days, I haven't eaten anything, and they come by with like these warm Uh... nuts, right? And I'm just like (laughs) scarfing down these warm peanuts and and walnuts and stuff. The dude sitting next to you is like, like, this is what first class is like? He's like, how the hell did this kid get on here? So I get off the plane, land in Dallas, get off the plane, um, and my parents pick me up, get in the back of the car, go straight to the hospital, right? Again, same thing, they ch- they do a chest mm-hmm. x-ray, they look at my other CD, of all this stuff. They hook me up to an IV, and they put me in an inpatient room, and they say, all right, you're gonna be here for a while, you're good. My dad is like, okay, um, I'm gonna go home and try and get a couple hours of sleep. If you stay with him until 11, then I'll come back at 11. You can go home and get some sleep, and I'll stay with them through the night, right? So I'm sitting there with my mom, and she's like, you really need a shower. i like, yeah, you're right. I, I do. So I get up, and I, and I go take a shower, and I get washed off, and I'm like, guys, oh, I feel a lot better. And I sit down in the bed, and maybe 10 minutes goes by, and I start feeling really, really bad. And the nurse comes in and my temp is now spiked at one Oh four. And my resting heart rate is 130 beats a minute. Oh Lord. And they're like, we're rushing them to ICU right now. So I, my mom's on the phone with my dad, you got to get back here right now, like freaking out. Right. And I'm being rushed to ICU and I get put, put in, in an ICU bed. And all I remember is sitting there watching the TV in front of me, which actually happened to be golf on TV. There's Tiger <laughs> winning you go. some golf tournament. Kept you <laughs> right? And I'm sitting there in this bed, and I have got all these IVs hooked up and, and you know all sorts of medicine, and I'm just trying to breathe is all. I'm just sitting there gasping for air, laying in a bed, right? And I'm looking at the screen, and it's resting heart rate is now at 140, and temp is 105, and they're talking about, do we put them in like an alcohol bath, or what do we do to try and lower this temp? And I'm just sitting there like, (sighs) just trying to breathe, right? It's primal. Yep. Super super primal. Not really sure what's going on. And my dad comes in and he sits down on the bed next to me and he goes, son, we're going to, we're going to intubate you now. Do you know what that means? And I was like, "Uh, I think it means you're going to put a tube down my throat. He was like, yep. And you're going to go to sleep for a little while. And I just remember looking at him, and he's like, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. We'll get get you taken care of. You're just going to go to sleep for a little while. And I was just sitting there breathing, and the only thing I could say to him was, Dad, I just don't want to die. I just really don't want to die. And he was like, you're not going to die. We're going to take care of you. You'll be fine. So sure enough, they come in with the the, um, intubation little, like, you know, the metal thing that looks like a big shoehorn. Oh, yeah. And at this point, I, they've pumped me full of so many drugs. It wasn't a challenge. They just shoved yeah. the tube down my throat. And at that point, I just went to sleep. And this was a summer. Did
1: they sedate you before they intubated? They did. Didn't well, they, they
2: didn't fully sedate me. I was just already. So um, out of it. Yeah, I was so out of it that yeah. it felt as though I was pretty sedated. I remember them doing the intubation, but it wasn't until after they got the tube that I was fully sedated. Mm-hmm. Um And then, so this is a a Sunday night and I'm out, right? Go to sleep. And I don't remember, obviously, any of this. I'm in a drug-induced coma. And Monday, my condition gets worse is what I'm told. Tuesday, the condition gets worse. And it hits about rock bottom on Wednesday morning, right? Where they're like, we really don't know if he's going to make it. And they're still doing Batteries of yeah, tests. So they no yeah. idea. they're they so got they've, poking you every day, exactly. taking it to the lab. Yep. And they've sent off all this stuff to the CDC. And Tuesday, as I'm still kind of making my way down to the bottom, um, the tests come back. And my mom, who is not, you know, she's married to a doctor, but she she's like your traditional mom, is talking to a colleague of my dad's and the tests come back and it turns out that I have what's called hantavirus pulmonary syndrome um and my my mom is talking to this colleague of my dad's and she said oh yeah I had a patient in residency who who actually got this and he made it about three days and we thought he was starting to get better and then he died and my mom just oh, lost geez. it, dude. Why would just,
1: you say that to a just mom?
2: Totally lost yeah. it, right? So at this point, now they know. Okay, the CDC's returned the test. He has hantavirus, and there's there's no like vaccine. Yeah, right? It's a bad diagnosis, exactly. And I'm just continuing to get worse, and so the, they don't really know what's what's going to happen. Yeah. They when when I was put under, by Monday they put two tubes in in my chest. And they drained six liters of fluid in 24 hours out of my lungs. Oh. Yeah, I checked into the hospital about 137 pounds, and I checked out at about 117 pounds. I lost yeah. 20 pounds while I was in the hospital, which was for a total of <laughs> two and a half weeks. Um,
1: Unbelievable! So, and if they were just—you were going to drown yourself, basically, yep, if they didn't—if they didn't get it, release out that. that fluid.
2: Yep. On Monday, they transferred me to a children's hospital because, number one, I'm 16, right? Mm -hmm, And so they're super paranoid that the big gun antibiotics were not right for me or were going to cause more harm to me than good. And additionally, this hospital that I got transferred to was one of the few in the state that had this machine that oxygenates your blood and puts it back into your system. So it basically bypasses your lungs if you're having lung failure and can oxygenate your blood until they can fix what's going on and, and then they can put you back on to using your lungs, right? Yeah. They never had hmm. to put me on this, this machine. I don't know what it's called. Uh, but that was a big um, reason as to why it was at this facility. Oh, my
1: God. Can you imagine that step being taken, though? Mm-hmm. That's got to be the last possible hope. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so Wednesday morning, rock bottom, right? By about end of day Wednesday, things are starting to get better. And what they know about Hantavirus is that it happens real fast. And it comes back pretty quick. So now they're like, all right, things are things are looking good. If he's on the way up, then we feel really good about this. By midday Thursday, I was off the, the ventilator. Um, I was breathing on my own. I still had a feeding tube. Um, Were you conscious at this point now? Yeah, once they took me off the ventilator, they brought me back to consciousness because I couldn't – the machine wouldn't breathe for me anymore. That must have been really weird. Yeah, so – When you're in this situation where you have all these these really powerful drugs um, pumping through your system, you don't really realize what's real and what's not. And it's not like...
1: It's also called like ICU delirium too, mm -hmm. right? When you're in a critical care unit, you start with all the bings and the bangs and Mm -hmm. you're constantly getting woken up to get blood taken out. You start growing delirious.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was... I was sitting there I remember this is probably 24 hours after I'd been taken off the ventilator and my mom is sitting in a chair reading a book next to me and and I'm looking at her and I'm like, is somebody gonna do something about this Dude, <laughs> there's a guy out there screaming bloody murder like he's gonna die and like is are, is no one does nobody care <laughs> and she's just looking at me like sweetie, it's okay you should go back to sleep that' should be fun." none of it existed right all wow. of it all of it was totally not real yeah and so through the process i'm you know now out of the icu in a patient recovery room and there are two things that are happening one i'm trying to come to grips with what's real and what's not because when you're in a drug-induced coma you have dreams And the dreams last for a long duration of time because you're asleep for, in my case, it was almost four days, right? And you were intubated the whole time you were, mm -hmm. God, that's a long time to be Mm -hmm. intubated. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to come to grips with what's real and what's not. And additionally, trying to come to grips with what my current situation actually is. And the biggest one that I remember was I'm sitting there in the bed, right? I'm, I'm pretty conscious of what's going on at this point in time. Now, um, I'm, I'm drinking out of a straw, uh, the feeding tube, I believe is out and I'm, I'm on a liquid diet and I'm like, dad, I, I got to go to the bathroom. He was like, okay, hold on one sec. Let me get up and I'll help you. I'm like, don't worry. I got it. Like I can see the bathroom door. It's five feet away from me. And he was like, son, you're not going to be able to get over there. And I was like six days ago, you were a six days ago. I hiked upper chaos and climbed V11 right (laughs) i can make it to the bathroom dad Dad, don't just don't i'm fine and he was like all right sure give it a shot so he walks over and stands kind of in front of me i throw my legs over the side of the bed and they're they're kind of you know when like the balls of your feet are just touching the ground but you're still sitting and i sit upright and i start to get a little bit woozy and i'm like i got this like this isn't that (laughs) i push myself up and i stand up for a about a half a second and then immediately just fall right back down onto the bed and he's like didn't mean to to, bring, to burst your bubble but i told you <laughs> I told you dude he's like you we're, this is going to be a process like you've been out of it for enough days and your body has essentially eaten enough of itself to stay alive that you're not yeah. able to walk so he i mean this is like a very sobering experience to have yeah. your dad carry you to the bathroom or have your dad carry you into a bathtub to, so that you can bathe as a 16-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a very um, eye-opening experience to realize how, to your point in the very beginning, how fragile life actually is and how close it can come from being taken away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, over the next couple of days, I um, learned how to walk again. Um, I was on, basically, if you've ever seen this before or know anything about it, They give you like this big leash that kind of looks like a, it looks like a belt, like a really long cloth belt. And they kind of affix it around Mm. your, around your waist, like your upper waist. And then they, they walk behind you and then they can kind of hold the leash and make sure that you don't tip over sideways or fall down or anything. So I was being walked down the hallway of the hospital by my dad or my nurse um, on a leash. And... Just kind of realizing the whole time, like, holy crap, like I, this could all have gone a different way, you know? Um, a few days after that, they wheeled me to the front door of the hospital and I was like, nope, stop it here. I'm walking out of this hospital and got up and took about 15, 20 steps into the back of the car. And that was the end of the really traumatic experience from that point. So I'm, I'm now a junior in high school um, school's already started. This is September. And I start to realize like what's actually happened to me and that I'm going to have to go back to school where I won't say I was disconnected, but my life became climbing very early on. And what that means is all of your friends at school are just your friends at school, right there. You don't have the same connection with them that Mm -hmm. you did before climbing. Right. So now I'm going to have to explain to everyone what happened to me and why, why I missed the beginning of school and what's going on and, and tell this whole story. And that was extremely stressful for me. Yeah. I mean, really challenging and I couldn't, I couldn't come to grips with that idea for at least another month. I was totally fit to go back to school, um, but mentally I had this, I wouldn't say it was like PTSD, because that I feel like is something that is extremely traumatic, more so than what I had. I just had like stress no, and anxiety. I don't think <laughs> so, man.
1: That's it's a huge ordeal that people suffer. Many people get PTSD from bouts in the ICU where mm-hmm. they face a challenge like that. Mm-hmm. Many people. Yeah,
2: but it was it wasn't until early October that I returned back to school um, and answered all the questions and everything of all my friends. And um, yeah, it was it was a tricky tricky process and I think that was a big catalyst to why I wanted to finish school early and try and just move on and yeah. you know start my new life was just that it felt like all of this was this big cloud that lived over me was that I almost died you know mm-hmm. and at the time as a 16 year old you you don't really care to be that person it's a hell of a thing to have explode in your life yeah when you're 16
0: how, how rare is hantavirus
2: it's pretty rare um there aren't very many people that are susceptible to even getting it, yeah. from what I understand. And I'm no doctor, um, I know a little bit of what I've read about it, but something like, you know, less than 10% of people are even capable of contracting Jeez. it. Um, and after that, if you contract it, the mortality rate's about 50%. So yeah. one in two people
1: 50%. Yeah. That is unbelievable.
2: Ooh. But a big part of that too is that, um, so you contract it from deer mice, and only deer mice, and the most common way that you get it is they will urinate in the dirt or in the dust, oftentimes Mm -hmm. in people's attics, and when they go and they clean out their attic, um, the dust moves around Ah, and they breathe in those air particles, and that's how they contract it. Um, And so a big reason why the 50% mortality rate is because a lot of elderly people, right, in their, their attics or things like that, They contract it. It incubates usually between two and four weeks that it's in your system until it actually hits you. It's not an immediate thing. Um, And then you feel like you have the flu for a couple days. Mm. And a lot of people get to the point where they're like, no, I'm just sick. And then they get to that break point where they can't do it for themselves anymore. They can't go to the hospital Mm -hmm. and then they, they don't make it.
1: The most insidious diseases lie dormant in that way, right? Yep you think I can handle it. I'm, I'm just getting the flu. Right. Whereas if you would have gone in the hospital at that first sign, mm-hmm. you would have been crystal clear. You would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But four days later, when yep. it's reached that critical point, yep. you're out of luck. It's just insidious. Well, how does that experience inform two things? And we'll let you go we have him chained to the yep chained to the radiator right yep. now he's not going anywhere if we don't want him to um no but how does it first of all inform your climbing and like how you choose to spend your time and much more importantly how does that inform your everyday life now
2: yeah i mean my my climbing and my everyday life i would say are affected in the same way which is just that i don't want to do things that are not valuable to me i don't want to i don't want to spend time like what i would feel like wasting you know mm. so if i'm gonna if i'm gonna go climbing i'm going to enjoy every second of it right i'm not gonna sure i'm gonna fall off a route, and i'm gonna be upset that i fell because i messed up or because i got too pumped or whatever like i'm not that kind of person that's like Oh yeah, everything's super great all the time. Like I have so much fun. No, I, mean, I I don't want to send anyways It's yeah, not a big deal. Exactly. Like I take it seriously. You know, I care a lot. Yeah. But I'm not gonna spend my time doing things I don't care about. And when I go climbing, I put effort into it. When I go to work, I put effort into it. When I have relationships with people, I put effort into it. And that I would say is the biggest thing: is that I don't really half-ass anything that I do. And I would say a lot of it comes from that experience, from realizing that you you can have it taken away from you like that, I mean, it can all be gone. Mm-hmm. So why spend your time pretending like it couldn't? I think that's about as good a point as any to sign
0: yeah. off.
1: Thanks sure. dude, yeah. that was an incredible story.
0: I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad to, to for be here that. and
2: glad to have uh, been a part of the process with you guys. This is yeah, super funny. Fun.
0: All right. I'm pretty. I'm pretty excited to clean up this coffee I spilled like 40 minutes ago on my foot. I'm pretty excited to take a pee. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Just couldn't, I couldn't if I Cheers, I man. Thank you.
2: All
1: right, dude. You want to know what chest. I thought about that interview? No.
0: No. Okay. No. I
1: am I'm gonna tell you anyway. Okay. Look at this exact moment. Okay. Ryan Sewell is like looking listening to that interview is like looking in a mirror, but it's super shiny and it's a really nice mirror. It's like your grandmother's mirror with fine ornate yeah. wood just wrapped big. around it. Yeah, big
0: intimidating. and intimidating. Yeah, and
1: heavy to carry just beautiful like a hand me down from generations and generations ago and when you look into it you're like oh, oh I we need to clean up we need to clean up aisle 7 yeah that's it's dude he is articulate well spoken good teeth he does have fantastic teeth
0: <laughs> i like his teeth
1: ryan we like your teeth ryan no but that was um He's got a lot of great thoughts, man. Yeah. I hope they hopefully get implemented into the movement.
0: In all seriousness, I was I was quite inspired by just his story of uh, overcoming that disease, man, that he had.
1: Yeah, I, I wish—I I was too, but I wish we wouldn't hit the stop record button. I know. Because right after that, he told the story about how he went back to rifle, and he fucking— he found. He found. hunted down. He put on like the Rambo headband, <sighs> and he found that mouse, and he killed him with his bare hands. Know.
0: That was. I mean, it was hard to hear it, but it was also sort of like full circle.
1: And it was like a nice revenge, like yeah. redemption story, because he was still young, and he's, he's like, still "Yep, he th- couldn't move on." I'm going he... for that mouse, man. Nobody t- treats me like that. His parents were like,
0: "Ryan, you're alive. Like, you can do anything now." Don't run
1: after your don't. past. You don't need to settle scores, Ryan. He's like, "Sorry, I gotta go." Some things a man's got to do in this world. Yeah. That fucking mouse is not getting away. Anyway, that was see, a great story. Yeah, that was really good. Um, that was a great interview. I listen, man. I'm getting sick. No, you're not. Yeah, I feel sick.
0: Dave, I would. F- I we're so close <sighs> that <sighs> we're right to are... the
1: end of the podcast, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting sick. I'm feel sickness overcoming me.
0: There's no way. I I we're soul bonded. I got, fl- I, would be fl-
1: I got phlegm in my mouth, in my head. I have a searing headache, and I thought Ryan could cure that. He's not. He's not a goddamn magician. He's not a
0: goddamn healer. All right. He's not a healer. He's a lot of things, he's but a, he's not, not a, healer. a healer. Sorry. Anyone looking for that? Speaking speaking of
1: not feeling under the weather, dude, how's your injury coming along? You know, I... What happened? Why don't you tell the people <sighs> in in the Thundercling Nation, what happened to you?
0: Climbing world, this is a story you've heard before. This is a story that is not so unfamiliar, no. I believe, to most long-term climbers. Mm-mm. You know, you've been climbing hard for a while, and, like, there are all these little signs, like, oh, man, like, I feel a little tweaky right now, but you know what? I'll I climbed through it, man. Up. I can it's fine. Like, I've been climbing hard for a while now. Like, I don't, I'll be okay. And so then you g- grab a hold that normally would be just a, just not a problem. Just a juggy, just a juggy bucket juggy, to juggy your strong juggy. little hands. But you've, f- you've forgotten that three months ago you tweaked that, si- like, the finger that's primarily going to take the load on a boulder problem and then never fully rehabbed it to 100%. And then you tweaked it four days before today
1: <laughs> because you couldn't. You,
0: you couldn't stop dude <laughs> yeah. you've got the climber sickness It doesn't help that i have to climb for my job and you set and I, yeah for setting on an
1: injured finger for how many months did you do so that? i've
0: been setting now without my finger working very well for like a while um but it's okay my co-workers are helpful and it's three weeks since i, bl- I blew my flexor tendon and on the mend. Yesterday, I climbed some slabs with you guys. It was uh, fun.
1: Uh, yeah, we were all together. You look really good.
0: <laughs> you look really. Uh, I I feel really good until there's a single hold that requires like my left hand. Yeah, but then, I thought your right hand, though,
1: dude. lord my, almighty, my right hand is feeling. I don't know how you held on to those things. When like I, your feet were on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That was.
1: <laughs> that was really impressive.
0: You know, I think all the power from my injured hand has gone into my right hand, so that's kind of a plus.
1: Yeah, watch the microphone, dude. You're going to cry. Hey, <clears throat> take it easy. Oh,
0: oh, <laughs> you almost did break it. Something happened. I'm sorry you had to hear that. Feeding. Wait, but what about you? I know you're getting sick, but you aren't you hosting Real Rock like tomorrow?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't freaking believe that's is happening. Um, you, yeah, Real Rock comes to Denver for a two-night stand four shows show at six o'clock show at nine o'clock next day show at six o'clock show at nine o'clock i gotta be the juggling monkey on stage like hyping up the crowd and throwing out raffle prizes and doing my little (laughs) dipshit spiel yeah four times and doing it for five years man holy shit i've never been sick always been psyched and just like four hours ago
0: If I'm coming down with a sickness. If you've been wondering why that sultry voice of Dave sounds Doesn't sound so, so good. Familiar. It's coming out of my nose right now. It's because you've seen him at Real Rock. Well, all those years. A couple of people from Denver. <laughs> <laughs> like 1,200 people. I went last year and I had a good time. I was the raffle ticket holder. I got you, you on stage. Yeah. Yes, I did. I was and very the, nervous. Maybe,
1: one, maybe that was a bonding experience, and now we're doing a podcast.
0: I just never. Yeah, I know. Wow. Wow.
1: Anyway, this is going to be terrible. I apologize to Peter Mortimer <laughs> right now. I hope I don't ruin your Denver show, but I may have um, explosive diarrhea and runny mm-hmm. nose. Yeah, and be coughing on all the. Does anybody want a sweatshirt? This is <laughs> raffle number, raffle number twelve forty two.
0: This is sweatshirt.
1: It's gonna I would be still take
0: a Yeti cooler even <laughs> if it was so I, yeah, The Yeti
1: coolers fun. are pretty sweet I, I hope it, if I have diarrhea backstage though, mm-hmm. It's going straight
0: into that Yeti cooler Dave if you faint on stage Fall over And like your so pants fall bad. down at the same time <laughs> And yes. you explosive diarrhea On the stage <laughs> I, will, I promise you I will do absolutely nothing <laughs> I would be too scared to go near you So it's all on you If that happens
1: I hope somebody is running video and uh that <laughs>
0: that was great
1: ironically enough nope. feedy
0: that might be our break that could, be, that could <laughs> be our yo that guy that shit himself on stage yo he's got a podcast he's got a <laughs> podcast dude <I> talk about <laughs> rock
1: scrambling man i i heard rumor oh. that he has like he shoots
0: out feces every time they're on the air bro dude that would suck because it would become your thing I and know. people would expect it. Like, we go on stage and we start talking, but like, no one's listening. They're just chanting, Shit, your p- Shit, your pants! Come on, you f-
1: fucking hack. Poop them already. Alex, um, Jesus. I'm sorry. You had to hear that. But uh, yeah, it's going to, it should be delightful to be sick on stage tomorrow night and Friday night. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to that. But I hope y'all are going to go see Real Rock because it looks fantastic. Anyway, should we take care of some housekeeping real quick? She. She, yeah. All right, the sick guy is going to take it over.
2: So. Damn! Damn.
0: Pardon the interruption. Um, I'm actually going to be taking over this because Dave is a sick, sick boy. I can't do it. He needs to rest his voice. He needs to get that tomato juice flowing
1: we have to publish this podcast in a couple days so we have to do this right now Mm -hmm.
0: so yeah we're just gonna take care of some dirty laundry um so if you have the energy and if you're willing to please rate and review us on itunes on itunes and you know what if you don't
1: that's okay that's also don't do it we it's not that big a deal if you feel behooved to uh rate and or review us that certainly helps
0: us in some <clears throat> <mysterious. Way> that, <laughs> I don't understand how it not. truly understood way. But yeah, that'd be great, guys. And if
1: you don't, your your listening is more than enough for us.
0: We also have uh, an email and website that you should check out, thundercling.com Thundercling.com. <laughs> and <laughs> Dave's a very sick boy. Uh, but yeah, if you have stories, artwork or photography that you'd like to share, or if you even just want to be potentially interviewed or uh on the show uh, shoot us an email at thundercleanpodcast at gmail.com.
1: Yeah. If you guys have a story um, with an enlightening point of view or something you've been thinking about writing and you don't know where to publish it or some, uh, maybe a, a photo essay or you'd like to be a guest, we are like truly, truly psyched. It's only our second show, so we're not expecting many people to call in, but Remember, like we are definitely, we don't want only uh the Chris Sharma's of the world. Yeah, we want the. That's not what we're about, guys. We and if the, you don't
0: get that by this point, what
1: the heck? Yeah, we want the Shris Karmas of the world, not the Chris Sharmas. Yeah, yeah. So get a hold of us. Yes, please. Thundercling Podcast at Gmail. We also
0: have social media. That's sort of <laughs> social. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, we have a Facebook. Mm-hmm. and an instagram
0: but uh yeah we're not working on that really that's right low now. priority guys low priority super low priority with yeah that's it and that's all there is and you should be happy now i i feel oh, sick god, dave, and but also dave. happy i'm
1: happy i'm happy with what you did you brought me joy feedy oh my god you dave you know i hate that no it's okay dave don't run away from your feelings Don't run away from your emotions. And if you do, circle back around and run towards me.